My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Wilson Keeney. And my name is Jean Lewis. And this is I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This recording's going to be a little bit different uh, than our usual chronologically structured analysis of yeah, the stuff. Yeah. Uh, we're just trying something new, something a little more freeform. It's more conducive to discussion that yeah. way, so we're not just checking things off of the a list. news and the um and the what we've been watching. Sects are going to be the same, but we're just trying something out yeah. a little bit different for the deep dive this week, just to see if it works for us. It's still early days of the podcast, and we're just sort of troubleshooting some things, find out what uh, makes for the best audio for you guys. So yeah, yeah. And this week's deep dive is going to be a bit of a more serious It's going to be a bit of a downer. Back back to sort of the JFK kind of tone. We're looking at Philadelphia. 1993, uh, Tom Hanks, Denzel Washington, Antonio Banderas. Uh, a, the lady who played the school teacher in Back to the Future 3. <laughs> Mary yeah. Ste- Steinberg. Uh, but first, let's get to some of the news, because there's been a quite a bit happening. There has been. Um... This has been the back end of the TCA press tour in America, so we've got some TV news, but we've also got a good amount of movie news this week as well. Let's start off with one renewal. Apple has preemptively re- renewed its new video game developer workplace comedy Mythic Quest Raven's Banquet for a second season ahead of its premiere in the next few months. Moving on to the bulletin, the History Channel is premiering a three-part documentary miniseries called Washington on February the 16th. Uh, the more astute and intelligent among you may have already surmised that it is about George Washington. Uh, and I don't know if you guys have seen the trailers, but it's got some really high-budget-looking reenactments and stuff in it. I wonder if they're going to reenact that time in Assassin's Creed 3 where I actually accidentally punched George Washington to death. Uh, probably not. You know, history yeah. will never know. <laughs> um, but yeah... It looks looks good. Looks like they're doing the last Zars sort of, sort of a thing um, in terms of the reenactments versus the talking heads. Apple has announced an April the third premiere date for its mystery series Home Before Dark, as well as an early renewal for a second season for the show. I'm quoting Deadline: The series follows a young girl who moves from Brooklyn to the small lakeside town her father left behind. While there, her dogged pursuit of the truth leads her to unearth a cold case that everyone in town including her own father, tried hard to bury. Uh, my understanding of this, and I might, be, I might be wrong here, but I seem to have some recollection that this is inspired by the life of an actual like 11-year-old journalist who was out running around after school, figuring things out and doing actual proper journalism and making national news in America. You don't even get many adults doing proper mm. journalism now. Uh, but I, I don't think it's like a true story. I think it's just inspired by... Um, anyways. Inspired by the true real-life story of Nancy Drew. Apple has announced a March 6th premiere date for the Steven Spielberg-produced Amazing Stories reboot. This is an episodic anthology series, basically a more family-friendly Twilight Zone. Uh, Apple has also announced an April the 24th premiere date for the limited series Defending Jacob, starring Chris Evans and based on the book by William Landay. I'm quoting Deadline, it unfolds around a shocking crime that rocks a small Massachusetts town 
and follows an assistant district attorney, played by Chris Evans, who finds himself torn between his sworn duty to uphold justice and his unconditional love for his son. So, you know, I'm aware of the, the deep plot in the book. The son is accused of murder, basically. Um, and I believe it's the, the kid from It, the main kid from It. Oh, yeah, he was in Knives Out as well. Yeah, yeah, him. Jaden Martell, is that his name? Yes. Yeah. Yes, the, the the tiny Nazi, yes. as Daniel Craig put it. Epics has announced a new development slate of series. To start off, there's a scripted series called The Winter King. Uh, it's a retelling of the Arthur, King Arthur legend, and it's based on the Warlord Chronicles book trilogy by Bernard Cornwall. Uh, I'm quoting from Goodreads here. Uther, the High King, has died, leaving the infant Mordred as his only heir. His uncle, the loyal and gifted warlord Arthur, now rules as caretaker for a country which has fallen into chaos. Threats emerge from within the British kingdoms, while vicious Saxon armies stand ready to invade. As he struggles to unite Britain and hold back the enemy at the gates, Arthur is embroiled in a doomed romance with beautiful Guinevere. Will the old world magic of Merlin be enough to turn the tide of war in his favour? Uh, secondly, there is a documentary series called Fall River, again quoting Deadline. 1979, Fall River, Massachusetts, home to the notorious Lizzie Borden. Three young women were killed in a series of brutal murders. Police alleged a satanic cult was practicing human sacrifice. The cult leader, a man named Carl Drew, was captured and sent to prison for life without parole. Twenty years after the trial, the lead investigator became so haunted by inconsistencies in the stories that he reinvestigated his own case after he retired. Evidence surfaced, bringing the entire story into question. This documentary series will tell the shocking true story of a town caught in the grips of the satanic panic, with new witnesses and evidence that shed light on murders that were thought to have been solved. Finally, the anthology documentary series Fiasco is in development. I'm quoting Deadline once more. Host Leon Naif... I apologise, Leon, I'm probably going to mangle your name. Host Leon Naifake, Naifark, will transport listeners into the day-to-day reality of our country's most pivotal historical events, bringing the light, bringing to life the forgotten twists and turns of the past while shedding light on the present. Season one of Fiasco will tell the story of the contested 2000 election between Al Gore and George W. Bush and the extraordinary legal battle that followed in Florida. So, of course, uh, when it says our country, it means America, because this is an American press release. Um, Who could play Al Gore? It's a documentary. Oh. Um, are you guys familiar with the 2000 election in America? Not particularly. Not particularly. Some crazy, more crazy shit. Interesting. Uh, basically, what happened was uh, it all came down to Florida, and whoever won Florida was going to re- win the electoral count. And it seemed like uh, George Bush had won, but then there was all sorts of questions about whether whether the votes were tabulated correctly, whether legitimate votes were being ignored because they were doing the whole Chad method of voting, where you uh, poked out a little square in a in a uh, thing that was given to you, and so it became this whole thing of well, do we count it if like the chad is still hanging by a little bit, like if if the whole thing's intact except for one chad that's been removed but is still hanging to the piece of paper, is that a legitimate vote? 
And I love how it's called the Chad method, and it's also to do with Florida. Yeah. Well, um, basically, uh, all of the the hanging Chad stuff would have helped. Would have helped Al Gore. Uh, and they started. Hey, they started a recount, but uh, the Bush campaign, I think it was, challenged it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, which was dominated by conservatives at the time, said no, stop counting. Bush is president. And there are hey, all, dude, let's go hanging, Chad. And there are, are a lot of people who think that Al Gore is still the legitimate winner of the 2000 election um, and question the wisdom of having a court system decide the result of an election, basically. But uh, they made it into a, an HBO movie called Recount uh, in 2008. But it was, yeah, it's sort of a crazy story, and I'm surprised that it's not talked about more, because it was like, for a good two months after the election, it was this contest of, like, no one knew who the president was, who the president was going to be, and they kept arguing over it, and it became this very vitriolic and, and partisan thing. God, can you imagine that happening this year? <laughs> Christ. Yes, like, God forbid. Bid politics becomes partisan again. ITV has ordered a true crime miniseries called The Pembrokeshire Murders, starring Luke Evans. I'm quoting Deadline, the story centres around two unsolved double murders from the 1980s that cast a shadow over the work of the Dyford Powers Police Force. In 2006, newly promoted Detective Superintendent Steve Wilkins decided to reopen both cases. Employing pioneering forensic forensic methods, Wilkins and his team found microscopic DNA and fibres that potentially linked the murders to a string of burglaries committed in the 80s and 90s. The perpetrator of these robberies was nearing the end of his prison sentence, but if Steve Wilkins was right, he was also a serial killer. Could Steve and his team find enough forensic evidence to charge their suspect before he was released to potentially kill again? Uh, we've, we know now, due to some, some comments by the AMC network executives, that the new Walking Dead spin-off World Beyond is airing as a two-season close-ended series. So it's not a mini-series, but it's also not going to be an indefinite thing. It's two seasons and out. Um, that it was always designed this way, apparently. I find this interesting. I would be interested to see more shows do that sort of I mean, this is what I feel like should be called a limited series. Yeah. Um, instead of calling mini mini series limited series, but I I find this interesting. It reminds me of uh, Vice Principals, that HBO show. That was the same thing. Have they said how many episodes each season's going to be? I think they've said how many the first is going to be. Let me just double check this here. Yes, it's a 10-episode first season, so I would imagine a 10-episode right. second season as well. So, like, at max, 20 episodes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Netflix has revealed an anime feature film called The Witcher, Nightmare of the Wolf. Not much is known, but uh, that is quite interesting to see how they're expanding the franchise, considering how monumentally successful that first season has been for Netflix. Netflix says it's on track to become its most-watched first season of any of its original shows. Jon Stewart's political comedy film Irresistible has gotten a May the 29th release. Jon Stewart, of course, was the 
host of The Daily Show for many years. He's written and directed this film, uh, which I'm quoting from Deadline, revolves around what happens when a small Wisconsin town becomes the main attraction of the American political circus. After the Democrats' top strategist, Gary, Steve Carell, sees a video of a retired Marine colonel, Chris Cooper, standing up for the rights of his town's undocumented workers, Gary believes he has found the key to winning back the heartland. However, when the Republicans counter him by sending in his brilliant nemesis, Faith, Rose Byrne, what started out as a local race quickly becomes an out-of-control and hilarious fight for the soul of America. Amazon is developing a series adaptation of James Patterson's long-running mystery series, Alex Cross. Uh, I'm quoting Deadline. Their, their novels focus on Metropolitan Police Department detective and father, Alex Cross, as he faces threats to his family and the city of Washington, D.C. Key and Peele showrunner Jay Martell is adapting his own book, Channel Blue, into a movie for Paramount. I'm quoting Hollywood Reporter... It centers on an unemployed screenwriter who unwittingly stumbles upon Earth's most closely guarded secret. The planet is actually an ongoing reality show for an advanced race of aliens, and it's about to be blown up because of bad ratings. Like, just thinking about our current state of affairs, you know, this is the point in all of the, the long-running shows when, like Days of Our Lives, when they start bringing it, when they run out of ideas and they start bringing demonic possession into the storyline, everything just gets too crazy. Oh, can, can we please just do that now? Can oh, I don't want to do that. the shark already? Oh, I think we jumped the shark a while back. Um... Captain Marvel 2 is in development. WandaVision writer Megan McDonnell is in final negotiations to write the script. Hollywood Reporter is reporting that it is aiming for a 2022 release. Amazon has won a bidding war between itself, HBO Max, Peacock, and TNT for a series adaptation of Rick Remender's comic series Fear Agent. Seth Rogen and David F. Sandberg are producing. I'm quoting Hollywood Reporter. Interstellar invaders, time travel, clones of clones of clones, and lots of whiskey. Whether he's battling the scourge of space, going back in time to stop the alien invasion that changed Earth forever, or winning his ex-wife back, there's nothing that Heath Houston won't do to try to right the wrongs and get his family back. He is, after all, the last fear agent. March the 6th has... Uh, is the release date set for the upcoming political biopic Run This Town about the real life of Toronto Mayor Rob Ford. Are you familiar with Rob Ford? Yes, I am familiar with Rob Ford. If anyone listening is not, I I thoroughly uh, recommend that you Google him because it's uh, insane it's wild. and kind of tragic story because he passed away a few years uh, yeah. after all of this happened. Um it's, I'm quoting Deadline here, the story of a naive young newspaper intern, Bram, who finds himself stuck writing clickbaity listicles instead of breaking hard-hitting stories like he dreamed of until he stumbles upon potentially scandalous information regarding the city's populist mayor, Rob Ford. Sensing an opportunity to prove himself, Bram begins his hasty investigation. Unknowingly linking his life and livelihood to Ford's aides, Kamal and Ashley, who are trying to support their boss while maintaining their integrity. As Bram, Kamal and Ashley weave their way through a scandal none of them were trained to handle, they struggle to keep their heads above the rising waters of debt, familial pressures and moral complications. Let me just look up, I'm trying to remember what the specific context of this was. Um, one of the most insane, uh, bits with Rob Ford that made most 
people, like, it got the international attention. Um, he was accused of, uh, he was accused of harassing a female staffer by telling her he wanted to have oral sex with her. And when asked about this in an interview, he said that he was happily married and has more than enough to eat at home. <laughs> so that's the kind of, like, level that we're talking about here. Um, and, like, a lot of drug offences, Yes, uh, I believe. Uh, stuff to do with cocaine. Um, he, yeah, he passed away in, in 2016. Uh, Definitely have a look at the Wikipedia page about him. Yes. He, he died of cancer, I believe. Yeah. But um, he needs a movie all about him. Damien Lewis is playing him, the guy from Homeland and the red-headed guy from Homeland and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, the Billions, Billions, he's the guy who's not Paul Giamatti. Um, <laughs> Why isn't Paul Giamatti playing it? That's a good question, because Paul Giamatti looks a hell of a lot more like Rob Ford than Damien Lewis does. Um, and he's got the energy. But, yes, uh, it's... it's Mad cocaine energy. It's full-on, like, Christian Bale as um, as Dick Cheney level of transformation. Really? Yeah. Let's look up some of the press photos if you're interested. It's quite startling how he normally looks and how he looks as Rob Ford. Uh, I really hope this next thing gets picked up to series. This sounds really interesting and I want to see it made. Uh, a series adaptation of Karen Thompson Walker's paranormal thriller book, The Dreamers, is in development uh, at the Disney-owned Fox 21 TV studios. Quoting Goodreads here. In an isolated college town in the hills of Southern California, a freshman girl stumbles into her dorm room, falls asleep, and doesn't wake up. She sleeps through the morning into the evening. Her roommate, May, cannot rouse her. Neither can the paramedics who carry her away, nor the perplexed doctors at the hospital. Then a second girl falls asleep, and then another, and panic takes hold of the college and spreads to the town. As the number of cases multiplies, classes are cancelled, and stores begin to run out of supplies. A quarantine is established. The National Guard is summoned. May, an outsider in the cliquish hierarchy of dorm life, finds herself thrust together with an eccentric, idealistic classmate. Two visiting professors try to protect their newborn baby as the once quiet streets descend into chaos. A father succumbs to the illness, leaving his daughters to fend for themselves. And at the hospital, a new life grows within a college girl, unbeknownst to her even as she sleeps. A psychiatrist, summoned from Los Angeles, attempts to make sense of the illness as it spreads through the town. Those infected are displaying unusual levels of brain activity, more than has ever been recorded. They are dreaming heightened dreams. But of what? Disney is developing a Lion King-style Bambi remake, so we can all look forward to see seeing Bambi's mum get shot to death in photorealistic CGI. Crisp 4K HDR, baby. That glorious HDV release. Uh, Hulu. I just want to know who's playing the characters in this. There's mm. a little... There's too little to go off of. Yeah, you know, we don't know enough about that yet. Uh, over at Hulu, the Marvel animated comedy series Howard the Duck and Tiagra and Dazzler have been cancelled uh, before they even aired. The, their series orders have been revoked. Now, this it was part of an initiative that Hulu was doing that they announced, I think, last year, last year, early last year, that uh, that they were going to do adult four adult animated comedy series, Howard the Duck, Tiagra and Dazzler, Modoc and Hitmonkey, 
and that they were going to move into a mini-series called The Offenders. It was basically doing the Netflix Defenders thing, but with an adult comedy series thing. So now that uh, Howard the Duck and Tiagra and Dazzler have been cancelled, The Offenders, The Hollywood Reporter is reporting, The Offenders is, is likely not moving forward either. But Modoc and Hitmonkey are still going ahead. Um, this all follows... Marvel TV, which was the production studio for these for these shows, uh, being dissolved, being folded back in to uh, Marvel Studios proper. Um, so these were all shows that were set up before that happened. And now Kevin Feige, who runs the movie side of things, is focusing on the TV stuff and bringing folding all the TV stuff into you know the proper MCU and all sorts of things so it would appear that he's cleaning house because the Hollywood reporter is saying that Marvel is the one that made this call not Hulu and uh, it makes me worry for the future of shows like Modoc and Hitmonkey and uh, Hellstrom which they have at Hulu as well uh, because from what I can read, these shows are actually already have produced episodes. And I half wonder if the only reason that they haven't been cancelled is because they're already in production. And it makes me wonder whether they'll, whether we're looking at a Swamp Thing situation, whether they'll just go no matter how successful they are. Kevin Feige is coming along swallowing up shows like Bloody Unicron from Transformers. With Howard the Duck, yeah, and the world wept that we don't get another Howard the Duck thing. I'm not terribly fussed about that. I checked out on all of the Hulu stuff after they canned Ghost Rider. Well, you see, that was I was about to bring that up. This is not the first time that one of these Hulu things have fallen through. Uh, the Ghost Rider was, was another situation that it was developed under Marvel TV, and they decided not to move forward with it, so... Uh, yeah, I hope that they keep using Hulu as a place to do more adult-themed stuff. Like, Hellstrom is supposed to be kind of a horror kind of show, apparently, so I would like to see more of that. Finally, for the bulletin this week, we've got an Anaconda reboot, baby! Uh, it's in development at Columbia. Evan Doherty, uh, the writer of Tomb Raider and Snow White and the Huntsman, is writing the script. Anaconda, of course, is the long-running franchise about a giant anaconda that is found in the jungle and kills people. Um, it is on the list. There are one, two, three, four... Yeah, four anaconda movies proper, plus a, uh, a crossover movie where the anaconda fights the alligator from Lake Placid. That's awesome. Um, only the fir- then and then the crocodile from Rogue is just mm. just watching from a corner. Uh, only the first Anaconda movie was theatrically released. The others were, I believe, direct to sci-fi. They were sci-fi original movies. Oh goodness! Actually, Anaconda two might not have been. Anyways, but um, I'm always in for more giant monster movies. Uh, we don't have enough of them. Uh, so I'm hoping that this gets off the ground because I enjoy a giant monster movie. Do you want to know the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? Sure. One will see you later, the other in a while. What? <laughs> the difference between an alligator and a crocodile. One will see you later, and the other will see you in a while. See you later, alligator, and uh, in a while, crocodile. Okay. <laughs> Um, 
<laughs> that was the best yeah. law. Um, yeah, as you were sa- as you were saying, there is a lack of creature features. Yeah, recently, uh, really, the only people who are doing them are the asylum, and I'm not going there. <laughs> like with you know Sharknado yeah. and all of that stuff. Certainly, the no, I mean, like, the animal style creature features. Yeah, there have been there have been a. The monster movies have been creeping back more and more, but the, the creature features, the killer alligators and the killer snakes and things, you're right that that has not really been the purview of any production company other than the asylum. I'll tell you what, I don't need to know the difference between the alligator and a crocodile because they both freak the hell out of me. You know, the big guy just they, needs to admit that he made a mistake with those ones. They, they can go back to where they came from. They're basically dinosaurs. Which Think is about awesome. it like this. Alligator crocodiles with, with big leathery wings. Yeah. See, here's the thing about the the alligators and the crocodiles is they they are my least favorite animal. I would say that they are the animal that I am most scared of because there is an implied cunning to them. You know, there's a way that they operate, which is that they sort of lurk under the water with only their eyes peeking up, like they're sneaking around. And when they catch you, they do the twirl thing to, and they store your body for for ages until it rots a bit and then they eat you like they store it in a little pantry thing that they've got. Like there's an implied level of cunning and intelligence there that you don't see in like, I don't know, a wolf. What about the minor bird? Look, I, the, the Shrike. The it's Shrike. A they, bird that quite literally gets smaller creatures and impales well, them Well, fair enough, sticks. but I'm not afraid of a bird, you know. Um <laughs> The crocodile... If there were enough of them, they could pick you up. Fair enough. We watched the birds. But, you know, the, the crocodiles... I don't know. It's a reptile thing. I don't like reptiles. I don't like snakes either, but I'll, I'll take a snake over a crocodile because I feel like... So Shelter must have been a hell of a movie for you. No, I've seen Shelter. I don't think I have. Would you rather take on the anaconda or the crocodile from Lake Placid? <sighs> Alligator from Alligator Lake Placid. From Lake Placid. Mm, you know, probably... Am I having to fight it, or am I just having to encounter it? Survive it. Survive it, the crocodile. I mean, you're not Vin Diesel. The anaconda will follow me (laughs) onto solid ground. I figure with the the crocodile, I've got a good chance once I get onto land, I can can just leave, and it's not... I can get away from it. It's not going to follow me into the street, you know? Whereas the anaconda... That it's going to... Sort of be like, meh, yeah. not worth it. Whereas the anaconda is just a, um, it's it's a it's a land based animal as well as a water based animal. There's no escaping it. Um, it's also, I believe, bigger than the the crocodile is. Uh, but that's about the so, only scenario in which I will uh, will choose a snake over a crocodile is if they if we're talking about whether I have to fight one or not, and they are mutantly large creatures. What was that movie you were talking about? Shelter. The only movie I can find called Shelter is is about a uh, like some drama. No. What What was the one about that crocodile in New Orleans? Oh, crawl. Crawl. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, I've crawl. Seen crawl. So that probably messed you up. Yeah. Like it freaks me out. Like it freaks me out because uh, I don't. Know. Yeah. They just. What about sharks? Eh, sharks, not really. Sharks, I can take or leave sharks. Um, they don't, the, the visual of a shark doesn't quite scare me as much. And I'm never going to be in a position where I'm going <laughs> to see a shark, like 
I don't go out into the ocean. I'll stay on the beach or close to the beach. But really, you know, just living in Australia, it's not totally unreasonable that I might find like find myself, you know, there are crocodiles all over the place here in rivers and things. Like, there's a golf course down from where we live. It's a decent bit away that has, like, huge sharks just in, in the, the water, water hazards. In the water hazards. They just live yeah. there. They do, like, feedings and everything. Yeah. It's insane. But the again, shark is literally their mascot. But again, I'd rather take on a... a I agree. I'd rather take on the alligator than the snake. Well... Because the snake is even sneakier. Well, yeah. But then, like, if you if you're talking, no, I'm just saying, if you're talking in real life, if you're talking, if you're just talking about a regular crocodile or a regular <laughs> anaconda, um, then you then you choose the anaconda, yeah. Um, because yeah. I feel like all all you really got to do with anaconda is if you if if you're really cramped, if you're in a cramped space, then the anaconda might be a problem for you. But if we're, if we're like talking about a wide open space or you're outside or something, if you just manage to jump on it a few times. Just crush its head, you know? This is my plan if I ever encounter an anaconda that tries to hurt me, is just jump on it. <laughs> and, then, and you've got nothing for the alligator. Got, and then I've while you do it, you might be able to find a fire flower or maybe a mega mushroom. Because you're basically being Mario now. Yeah. But I just feel like, because it's stuck so close to the ground... You just get yourself in a position... You have the high, you have the high ground. I do, and you know... I. I'm I'm a substantial person in terms of weight, so I can just sort of try and center it all. And if I get it on its evil-looking skull, uh, <laughs> all I really need to do is is just yeah, see, jump a few times. See, I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking we're, we're way off topic here, but I've been thinking about this because over Christmas um, we found this gigantic snakeskin in our backyard, like a huge snakeskin. Um, it was like th- three meters long, um, and it was like a carpet snake. Like it's not poisonous or anything, um, but I, it just freaked me out because it's like it's in the backyard, you know. And w- yeah, but you know, it's still around. Well, not necessarily, but it was we, we it was up in a tree, like o- going over the fence in the next door neighbor's yard. So it's their problem now. But we've got a little dog and a little cat, like small animals in the backyard. And, you know, if that thing got a hold of them and tried to it just It'd wrap be game over. So I've been thinking, you know, what do I do if the dog starts squealing and I go outside and she's gotten caught by this carpet snake? And I feel like what you've got to do is like sort of grab it just under the head. So, and then just sort mm. of like bash it over and over again and just try and cause as much discomfort as you can. Or just chuck it over the fence well, it, I'm, head first. Got so to, while it's got the yeah, dog. You've got to get it to release the animal yeah, first. After that, it's sort of fine because even if it bites me, a carpet snake is not poisonous. It's going to be an uncomfortable moment for me, I grant you. But I'm... <laughs> just standing there like waving your hand around yeah, with a snake attached. I am not in danger of being crushed by a snake in the way that my tiny little dog is. Anyways, this has been our our uh, new segment, How to Survive Reptiles. <laughs> so we've kind of figured that our podcast is now anti-reptile, anti-reptile. but still surprisingly hey. pro-werewolf. Yep. No, I think there are things we can learn from the crocodile. No, I still like reptiles. There are things we can learn from the crocodile, and there are things it can learn from us. All right, you, you guys, you, you figure that out. I'll be staying as far away as possible. Like, uh, we've had discussions. Like, we can teach them, 
you know, how, how to communicate properly and opposable thumbs, thumbs, they can teach us the death roll. You've had discussions about this. Yes, we yes. have. <sighs> Alright. Um, <laughs> Crocodile votes. Alright. We, some, I don't know how we got onto all that, but there's Anaconda. Anaconda. Anyways. Moving on. Anaconda! Moving on to the, uh, the discussion points this week. Uh, Universal is developing a film adaptation of the old David Carradine series, Kung Fu. David Leach, who is the co-director of John Wick and the sole director of Deadpool 2 and Hobbs and Shaw, is set to direct this film. Quoting Deadline, the original ABC series starred David Carradine as a master martial artist who fled China after his master was murdered. He wandered the Old West, helping the downtrodden and weathering rampant racism while eluding assassins trying to kill him. He was a peaceful man until provoked, which happened at least once an episode. I'm so not quite peaceful by this. I'm fascinated by this because we've just come off of watching both Kill Bills, and David Carradine was excellent in that. I'm very interested to see how this show goes, because you've got, or no, this movie goes, because you've got David Leach, and he's brilliant at the sort of close quarters action stuff, because he was, at one point, a stunt person and stunt director. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. I'm always in for more of the fight, choreo, martial arts martial stuff. arts stuff. Because you you get a lot of action movies now with big fight scenes and everything, but not a lot of kung, you don't get kung fu movies anymore. There's Shang Chi that's coming out from Marvel that's going to have that basis. They touched a lot of the martial arts stuff in stuff like Iron Fist and Daredevil. Have you guys seen the yeah. Raid movies? No, I've seen haven't. scenes. Yeah, that's like the scenes. Like, the, the one in the, I think, the kitchen in the second one. Mm. Ugh. That's all insane. I don't, like, there's just part of me that, I'm always very impressed by that stuff, because it's like, how is the yeah. human body, the human body's not supposed to be able to move like that, you know? No. And it's also remarkably fragile. Mm. Yeah, people say, oh, human beings are so intelligently designed. Have not you really. ever been sick? I have an like, off button in the center of my face. If that gets punched, it flies into my brain, and then you I'm done. done. Like, the human body is objectively bad. I have... But then you've got a movie like Drunken Master, where you've seen Jackie Chan do yeah. all of this wild shit, and you, you, you just get fascinated by the pure excellence so, of movement. So with this, yeah, do we know like, if David Carradine... Two and a half weeks ago, I cut myself with a cheese grater making dinner, and I still hasn't fully healed. <laughs> so, yeah. I don't know how these people are doing what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, do we know if Carradine is involved? He's dead. He's dead. Huh. Yeah. So, anyway. No, Harley, I would be very surprised if he was involved. <laughs> that I would have, I would have led with that if. <laughs> okay. Do we know if any. Performers that are attached to the project? No, not at this point. It's it's in development, early development. No, I'm excited for this. I could always use more martial arts based, you know, content. Yeah. I wonder whether they'll keep it being a white guy or whether they'll cast an Asian actor. Because it seems like the kind of thing where people will start their internet campaigns if it's not an Asian actor. Well, they did that for Iron Fist, yeah. which 
completely misses the entire the, point of the character. With Iron Fist, the fact that Danny is white is the whole point. See, I don't just just reading this little synopsis thing. He wandered the old west, helping the downtrodden and weathering rampant racism. It's like, but David Carradine was white, and the old west yeah. was white. What's the racism here? What? What? I mean, oh. what are the racists at him for? I'm, I, is he playing an Asian man? I hope not. Is I hope not. Or is it just like he's using an Asian form of fighting and that's what maybe that's it. I don't know. Like if if yeah, maybe they don't like him because he has engrossed himself into Asian culture. Like if the character is meant to be Asian, obviously get an Asian actor. Yeah, obviously. Oh, I'm I'm looking at the the photos and I I, I suspect he might actually be playing an Asian character. Oh boy. Whoops. Um, Hello, breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh God, he's he's playing David Carradine is playing a character called Kwai Chang Kane. Mm. So yeah, get a get an Asian get an Asian actor, hundred percent. Because because there is some uh, I know the guy who who's playing Shang Chi is a fantastic martial artist, and they got him for. Mainly that purpose. We just cost Donnie Yen and everything. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care if he's too old to play a young man. I Ooh. don't care. Um, uh, there was a in John Wick three. There was a couple of those main bad uh, guys assassins. Yeah, the the John Wick super fans. Yeah, students. Yeah, th- like those two guys. Yeah, that really kicked the crap out of him. Yeah, or you just get the guy who played the super fan. Yeah. HBO Max has given a series order to the animated satirical comedy The Prince about the royal family, the British royal family, through the eyes of Prince George. Orlando Bloom, Tom Hollander, Alan Cumming and Iwan Rion are among the cast. I'm quoting Deadline here. Before George rules Britannia, he'll be laying down his own laws in Gary Gennetti's comedic take on the future king of England's childhood as seen from the prince's own point of view. Because this because his succession isn't coming any time soon, in each episode George will find his path in life as a young prince in modern times, from the 775 rooms of Buckingham Palace to his family's sea of corgis to primary school with commoners. Uh, just look at the animated, the, the the little press screenshot that they released, and looking at the animated style here, reminds me of uh, our cartoon president in terms right. of its sort of exaggerated designs and what it's doing. And frankly, the pitch of it sound reminds me of that too. Yeah, it does. Uh, I find this... If you guys need someone to be Prince Charles, I will do it. <laughs> um, I find this interesting. I wonder how much of this is going to be satire, how much of this is going to be a pointed thing of current events and and making comments about the royal family or and how much of it is just going to be like a your average sitcom with this i think it's a hilarious concept but i am so unsure about having the focus be on prince george yeah take the he's just a little the, kid he's just a little kid seem. right now i don't think they're going to be picking on him mainly 
the older members of the royal yeah. family. But you see, if you make him the main character, then he becomes the sensible focus point. Yeah, yeah the straight man. For, yeah, the straight man for all the, the, you know, the antics of Charles and... Mm. Oh, daddy. Yes. And with the fact that Harry and Megan have, you know, left their royal duties and stuff, I... Something about this just seems at least a tad... Opportunist? No, invasive. You know, I, I, I'm not a fan of royalty as a concept. I don't like the idea that, you know, I must say, bow and say, oh, hello, your majesty, because of who someone's dad and mum were. Like, that just seems like a profoundly stupid thing. And you hear some of the things that the royal family makes you do. Like, apparently, when if you're eating dinner with the queen and the queen finishes dinner, it doesn't matter if you're finished or not, you have to stop eating as well. Why? You just cram at the no, end. No, for what possible reason? Justify that to me in any way that is not, well, the queen's better than you. You can't. It's stupid. My mummy said so, Lawson. My mummy said so. And, you know, for as modernising a force as Queen Elizabeth II has been, and for as remarkable a woman as she has been and, and doing as much as she has done, she has done a great deal of good uh, for British society, and she's she's been on the forefront of a lot of positive changes uh, in England. But she still has no problem with that rule, and she still enforces it, apparently. So this is... And then the, the idea, like, okay, we've got Elizabeth II, and she's fine, you know, she's she's worked in her life and she's a sensible person. But the idea that someone like Prince Charles just gets to be king because he was the first one born, and it's only because Prince Charles was the first one born that Prince Andrew is not going to be king. I mean, you've you've got to admit... Dodged a bullet on that one. These, these sort of accidents of birth and genealogy, you've got to admit that this is not a very good Oh, setup Lawson, it was no accident. <laughs> I made sure I was born first to my mummy and daddy. Um, like, I, I totally agree. I'm not that hot on the monarchy either. Frankly, most systems of... Most systems that raise other people above, above others simply because of... Hereditary stuff. Hereditary stuff... Or even their position in a government—it's whack. It. I get I, it when it's. I don't I, think. I get it when it's like a what, president or a prime minister because then it's like, okay, you've you're actually doing something. Like you're not a figurehead. You're running a government, and also you've been elected by people. That can get complicated as well, though. When they actually are doing something, uh, like I really want to know how they're going to portray Charles. I want them to do my version, where he's so- somewhat of a perverse, kind of weird goblin man. I wonder... Oh, Daddy, ha- can I eat sh- one of the corgis Have now? they shown how they're gonna do the art style for uh, Prince Philip? Yeah, click on the Prince link. Prince Philip is going to look like the, the Crypt Keeper. Um, the... I'm assuming positively ghoulish. The, uh... What was I gonna say? Prince Andrew is just going to be covered in sweat. (laughs) (laughs) Prince Charles is, he's going to look like Dumbo. His ears are going to be absolutely massive. I mean, and I, Um, I I do feel a certain amount of sympathy for the royals because then you've got all of this bizarre circus sideshow that they've turned into with the older Harry and Meghan stuff. And, you know, they're 
following George and Charlotte down the street on their way to school trying to get a photo. And it's just like, what is wrong with you? But it's like, you can't have it both ways. To your criticism, Harley, uh, you know, fans of the monarchy can't have it both ways. You can't simultaneously get all upset when uh, George is the subject of, of a little TV show like this, but also uh, react with outrage that, Harry would dare to move out of the country and want a private life of some sort. Like, for me, it's when the kids are involved. Mm. Yeah. Then it starts going into a much greyer territory. Yeah, it's it's like how our cartoon president hasn't taken the piss out of Baron yet. Yeah. Because he's still just a kid. It's like, when they're kids, I think that shit is... A real grey area. Yeah. When it comes to the adults... The moment they hit 18, though, you can take the mickey out of them as much as you want. Mm. I feel like like it all comes down to how they choose to portray it. If they make him like yeah, yeah. the Lisa Simpson mode, where he's the most sensible person in the room... That, that would be funny. Yeah. <laughs> Just looking at this picture, as I oh said, my positively God. ghoulish. Mm. Oh, they did Camilla dirty. <laughs> Jesus. There's a there's a series on I think Channel Four called The Windsors, which is a live action sitcom. Um that's on the list. It look it looks very funny. Uh Harry and William look spot on. I'm just wondering if they're gonna like edit something so that Harry and Megan just get wiped out of any scene. So that they in. aren't in those scenes. That would be funny. Um, like the inner scene at one point, and then he cut back, and then not there. Do you think they were like working on this, and then all that came out, and they were like, "Oh shit!" Yeah, yeah I definitely <laughs> think that. They were well, like, see, our cartoon president would have a scene at the beginning of the episode that would sort of talk about mm. something that happened that week or something, and then the rest of the episode yeah. would just sort of go ahead with. Because they've, the animation was so uncomplicated, they've actually ordered more episodes of. Uh, our cartoon presidents for its third yeah. season to take it through the election. I I think a f- a hilarious thing they could do with an episode of The Prince is basically have it be like a whatever their standard episode seems to be, but every time it's meant to cut to Harry and Megan whenever they say something, it cuts to a live action house no, in Canada. No, no, no. It's just <laughs> no. It's just dead silence. Nobody there. Um, <laughs> it's just like they are invisible. It's like they've been scrubbed out of an already been completed episode. No, I like the idea of like it cuts to just a far off picture of a Canadian house in the woods, just somewhere. His not to not to get too ghoulish, and this is probably is a little bit ghoulish, but. These shows, The Windsors and The Prince, we're talking about a couple of very old people in Prince Philip and Elizabeth. Yes. Mm. What what did the, does the show do if either of them pass away? The same thing as the roles have done for this entire time with Philip. Just put a bit of lightning in him, he'll be right as rain. <laughs> I feel like... I suppose... I just feel like there's a lot of things that could cause problems yeah, for them if, with definitely. that stuff. Like, I feel if it happens between seasons, something like that, then they could... Yeah. But if it, 
if like, just imagine like it would be tasteless for well, like, just imagine it's airing it's because it, these are doing the the weekly episodes on HBO Max. Yeah. So just imagine you're four episodes into the second season, there are six more to air, and then Prince Philip dies or something like that. Yeah. And Philip's in the other six. What do you? And that's and that stuff's a real possibility, um, considering how old they are. Oh yeah, Philip just got out of hospital. He's he's not looking like a well man. Like no. Uh but but then it it becomes like and this is a different thing entirely, but the Trump thing. I don't know how successful our cartoon president is for Showtime, whether they want to continue it in perpetuity, but if he doesn't get reelected, you know, knock on wood, fingers crossed, God hope he doesn't get reelected. Um but if he gets voted out in November, are they going to do a fourth season? Just rebrand it as our cartoon war criminal. <laughs> but like you, I suppose you could just keep doing it like as a as a sitcom with, because you know he's not going to shut up, no. and you know that like well, like there is if he loses in November, there is absolutely nothing to prevent him from running again in twenty twenty four. Presidents have term limits, but they don't have to be consecutive terms. I'm just wondering about how sincere this show might be in comparison to something like Cartoon President, is it going to have... It's not going to be completely sincere. It is clearly a satire. Yeah. But I'm just wondering how sincere it will be. I wonder how British it will be. Like, is this going to be in the, uh... the yes minister mode of things? Where it's quite cynical and... Yeah. These are all questions that we cannot answer at this point in time, but... Yeah. Uh... Anyways, moving on, Bad Robot... Oh, Daddy, did you see me in animated form? That... I'm gonna be someone's tattoo, Daddy. Is it gonna be your tattoo, Daddy? I hope I'm going to be plastered on your body, Daddy. See, here's the thing. I've kind of come around on Prince Charles a little bit. Like... Yeah, a little bit. Him snobbing Pence? (laughs) That was epic. Bad Robot is in early development on uh, Justice League Dark projects for both TV and film. J.J. Abrams... Recently signed an overall deal with Warner Brothers, uh, that included his, his bad robot company, of course. So it will be interesting to see what kind of projects come out of this, because Justice League Dark, of course, is focusing on the more ethereal side of the, uh, the DC Comics universe. Um, I've been watching some DC animated movies recently, and it's made me want, this is my pitch for JJ Abrams, uh, is, an adult-skewed HBO Max live-action show, an anthology show, a seasonal anthology show like American Horror Story, uh, that is just called Elseworlds and is an adaptation of a different Elseworld arc each season. You could really get in and explore the the ideas and the... Like, you could have the Batman versus Dracula season and you could have the, the Red Sun season and all of that. Animation or live-action? Live-action. I want, like, uh, big budget, dark. Uh, I feel like it would have to be animated. When it comes down to it, I don't see a live-action version of that being possible. Because I don't think Warner Brothers would be willing to do that. With the amount of, you know, trouble Gotham got in even being able to say Batman or Joker, I don't see a live-action Elseworlds. But they could definitely do an animated one where you take literally the animated style of that comic. Yeah. And you just do that. You could get some of the prolific voice actors, maybe some of the real life actors as well. Yeah, similar to the What If, 
yeah. show um, that's going on to Disney Plus. See that that's not nearly as interesting me to me as like getting like a full on big budget eight episode season thing to really like explore. Like just imagine like live action Gotham by Gaslight. And it's like in the style of like Penny Dreadful or something. It's... Lawson, I have wanted that for so long. Don't get me wrong. I would love they need to, a live action Elseworlds. They need to stop being so bloody precious with thing. their Batman Joker things. Just pull their thumb out. It's not. What do they think is going to happen if they start to use those those characters? Yeah. But uh... like, and it would broaden the new. Live action DC multiverse. It would. Anyways, Holly, you would you would know more about the Justice League dark stuff than than I would. I don't know about you, John, but uh, what what kind of things would you expect to would be obvious things to come out of this? Like, and and what would you, right. what would you say would be a film as opposed to a TV show? Right. So the Justice League dark, as you said, they cover the world-ending magical threats. So, the current members of the Justice League Dark in the comics right now consist of Wonder Woman as the team leader, uh, Detective Chimp, uh, Man Bat. <laughs> hang on. Detective Chimp. Uh, pitch me on Detective Chimp. Is he, is he simply a chimp who is a detective? I you got think, me in a box here. I think he's more than a chimp. He's one of the smartest beings but he's, in the DC is universe. Is he a chimp with, like, a, with like glasses and, like, wearing little chimp clothes? Yes. All right. I can tell you exactly what he's wearing, Lawson. You know what Sherlock Holmes wears? Yes. There you go. There you go. It's a, basically a chimp, just as Sherlock Holmes. Right. He's an alcoholic. <laughs> uh... And he's an arsehole. He's an arsehole. I want a live-action detective chimp procedural mystery With series. Andy Serkis. <laughs> so it would actually be really tight, because he's a very detailed and dark and hilarious character. To see a chimp walking around alongside Batman trying to solve, like, a ritualistic serial killing is the only... It, you, you only find it in comics. And... Like, Batman greatly respects Detective Chimp because of his intellect. Anyway, so there's Wonder Woman, Detective Chimp, Man-Bat, who is the resident scientist, uh, who's also half man, half bat, Uh, Zatanna, who is one of the most powerful witches on the planet, also a stage magician. Yeah. Um, Swamp Thing. The who's avatar the avatar of the, of the green? green. Uh, Doctor Fate, sort of. Uh, who's insanely changeable. He's this immensely powerful sorcerer who is basically controlled by the helm of Naboo, which is an ancient Egyptian god. Not Naboo, the planet from Star Wars. No, it's not like he's got a bunch of gungans rattling in his head. Naboo with a U. Yeah, not a ooh. Uh, and then the final member of the team, and my favorite, John Constantine, who's an asshole. Plain and simple. Uh, so, a Justice League Dark series would have to obviously use the more mystical-oriented characters that are present. I don't see Wonder Woman being part of that, because she's only involved as of the as of specific recently. bits of her backstory, and she's not what is known as a 
legacy member of it. People like Detective Chimp, Constantine, Zatanna, they are. Yeah. And Batman, on occasion. On occasion. Uh, but he doesn't deal with magic too often. No. And uh, he doesn't really believe He it. doesn't like it. He hates magic. Something fierce. Uh, another member is usually Etrigan. Yes. The demon. Who is also Jason Blood, an immortal. So what of these uh, would you say would make a good TV show and what would make a good... Like, what what are these character setups that would serve them well in each medium? I think I think Detective Chimp is definitely one of them. Because he's would got be a really crazy. sort of deep backstory about why he's a detective and everything. Yeah, it's, he's a fascinating yeah, deep character. Question. Etrigan. When he turns up to, like, a crime scene or something... Is everyone just, like, on board with the fact that there's a talking chimp dressed in Sherlock Holmes outfit? At the moment, yeah. So no one ever questions, no one ever questions the fact that there's uh, a talking chimp. Harvey Bullock does. Yeah, Harvey Bullock doesn't <laughs> quite like it. He's like, is that a monkey? Batman? Batman's like, he's a chimp. But it's like, there's not like, it's not like a thing where people, like, scream when they see him going down the street or try and take photos of him or something. Like it, it, it's he usually DC keeps universe. to himself. Okay. It's the DC Universe, Lawson. You see a lot of weird uh, shit. So maybe getting Constantine involved as well, even though he uh, is, even though he's Legends involved in Legends of Tomorrow. Well, they keep talking about spinning him out into his own series again. Yeah, I think that would be good. Uh, you could get the same guy. You could bring Swamp Thing back, please. Zatanna, <laughs> Zatanna definitely uh, would be great. There's a lot of room for JJ to ex, and the people he gets involved to really explore stuff. As villains, who would you get? Because I know that Titans <laughs> had Trigon, so you wouldn't exactly. Trigon's be able not to do a him. Justice League dark villain. No. Who is Detective Kemp's nemesis? Crime. <laughs> he doesn't really have a nemesis. Unsolved crime. Is, is there a Kemp uh, Moriarty? Honestly, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you about that. <laughs> I. I'm hanging all my hopes on a Detective Kemp show now. I will be totally and completely disappointed if whatever comes out, if at least one of the things that comes out of this project that J.J. Abrams is working on, if one of them is not Detective Kemp, I will be so, so disappointed. No, it it's definitely a fantastic wheelhouse for J.J. to be exploring. Yeah. Because there's so much. There's the whole idea of... The origins of magic in the DC Universe has covered in the most recent Justice League Dark series. There's the Upside Down Man. Oh my Cersei. god, his name is Bobo! Yes, yes it is. It's Bobo T. Chimpanzee, and his alter ego is... That's his alter ego, and his superhero name is Detective Chimp. And he's you a refer skill- to him as Detective Chimp. He's a skilled swordsman. Yes. Yes, he is. Well, Sherlock Holmes was... He uses a magic sword. Yeah. With the unwieldy strength of a chimpanzee. Yeah. This is this uh, is all just too good. We need this. He's your new favourite character well, now. Think isn't about he? it, Lawson. There's also a telepathic gorilla king of Gorilla City called Gorilla Grod. And in Doom Patrol there's a character literally called Danny the Street. Who's a sentient genderqueer street. Okay. So DC is wild, dude. Sh- shit gets weird. And Justice League Dark is the, one of the perfect avenues to attack, yeah. to look at the magical side of things. They touched bizarre places. With they it. touched some of the stuff with certain characters in Swamp Thing. Yes. So people like Blue Devil, Madame Xanadu, Swamp Thing himself, 
Floronic Man, Jason Woodrow. All of Which that. Bring Solomon Grundy. Yes. As maybe to replace. He's part him. of the Injustice League of Magic. Right. God. So you could take some of those characters to replace some of the already live actioned characters. Yeah. Like, who would you get to replace Constantine? Another shitty British wizard. <laughs> okay, so. The. People getting the rights to John Constantine has been difficult in yeah. the past. So people come up with their own versions of Constantine. Uh, when Grant Morrison was creating Doom Patrol, he wasn't allowed to use Constantine in a story he planned. So he created Wobbly Kipling, who is very similar to Constantine, but not quite Constantine. Someone else doing a different story couldn't get Constantine or Kipling, so they created their own third shitty wizard. Or they could have Constantine and just bring back Keanu Reeves. Because he's been waiting for that. He's been waiting for the opportunity to do Constantine It's the one way to get him into a superhero thing. Mm. And you know that'll bring an instant audience with it. Definitely. So there's a lot of room for them to play in the space. Absolutely. Justice League Dark has an animated film. It does. Uh, It was okay. I liked it. it. it was fine. Sebastian Blood was the bad guy, right? No. No. Uh, overall, he can do whatever the hell he likes. Yeah. It's magic. Rules don't exist for Bring magic. Bring the Spectre in. Bring the Spectre, Phantom Stranger, all of these different cosmic characters. The Hawks. Finally for this week, Josh Rubin is set to direct a film adaptation of the Ubisoft VR game Werewolves Within. I'm quoting from Deadline here. Similar to the Assassin's Party game, the Werewolves Within fantasy video game is set in a fictitious medieval town where a werewolf is attacking the townspeople. In a mafia-style format, the players of the game must guess who among them is the werewolf in disguise. So, we've quickly become a pro-werewolf podcast. Uh, Werewolves, baby! There you go. I, I like the idea of this. I like the idea of a mystery werewolf movie. Comedy mystery werewolf movie. Yeah. They've cast one of the actors from Veep in it. I think, like, comedy and werewolves isn't really a mix that has happened as much in the past. Because Not as much you, as comedy vampires. No, because you... Well, not as much as vampires in general. But you... There's a lot of funny stuff that can happen with werewolves. Like, in... Previous Werewolf movies like The Howling and Wolf and American Wolf in London and Paris, they're very serious sort of takes of the body horror of changing this sort of disease that you can't get rid of kind of spin. I feel like most people would describe an American Werewolf in London as a horror comedy. Well, yeah, but more horror-ish? Yeah. Well, there's, in the BBC TV show Being Human... They're just some of the funny werewolf stuff, alongside funny ghost stuff. Yeah, and in What We Do in the Shadows. Yeah, that also comedy has... Comedy werewolves. Comedy werewolves. It's werewolves, not swearwolves. Yes. Uh, and, and that and show's going to show be coming out as well. soon. And so did Wellington Paranormal. Yeah. So, I'm just excited for more werewolf stuff. Yeah. But, like, solely werewolf. Yeah. Not addressing other sort of creatures. Vampires and witches, the old hat, you can't really do much with them. Hmm. But werewolves, they 
they have yet to hit the Renaissance, and there's a we, lot you can do with them. Because we had Teen Wolf. Yeah, we had but, Teen Wolf. But that's basically Riverdale with more hair. And that's yeah. Buffy the Vampire Slayer with more hair. Like, that is that is so what Buffy the Vampire Slayer was to vampires. Mm. And, like, if, and you, got... if you guys like Teen Wolf, then you really should tr- check out Buffy. We didn't watch it. We didn't watch it. I liked the two movies. Well, that's not what that show was in the slightest. Well, that's what disappointed me when I heard they were doing a Teen Wolf show. And there's... When I saw the first trailer, I'm like, Twilight. That's not Teen Wolf. Twilight had werewolves. Does it pass the werewolf sniff test? They were shapeshifters, not werewolves. Werewolves are shapeshifters, Harley. What are you talking about? In Twilight, they were specifically shapeshifters. Yeah, they could like change. Why did they turn they into could wolves? change in the day. They didn't have to change because of the moon and things like that. They Why follow... did they turn into wolves? They f- could they only turn into wolves? Yeah. It was a cultural thing as well. Yeah, they were all Native American werewolves. Couldn't can, can they just turn to like a big bird? No, because over the course of that group's history, they had turned into wolves for cultural reasons so that each generation lost the ability to turn into something else. So they're werewolves? No. They are shapeshifters who turn solely into big wolves. Yeah, I'm looking at the tw- at the Twilight wiki, and they are saying that they are shapeshifters, often mistaken as werewolves. They're descended from the ancient spirit warriors of the Quilute tribe. Yeah. Okay. Would you believe sure, that? Stephanie. Would you believe that Twilight is on the list? I do believe that. That's very believable. That's going to be an interesting week. Mm. The last movie is good. The last thirty minutes. The last thirty minutes of the last movie is good. If you don't, if you cut off at the end where everything's just a dream. Yeah. I saw the first two movies when they were in cinemas before I was just like whatever. And stop paying attention. I can't deal with how green those movies are. Mm. Just in terms of visuals. The first movie, it's it's seasonal depression kind of a, put on camera. Kind of amazing that David Slade went from 30 Days of Night to making a Twilight movie. Yeah, well, they. I think, yeah, it's... Where's the 30 oh, Days of Night TV show? That's a good question. Didn't they say they were... I read something that they were looking into something like that. Because they did like so, a like a whole bunch of um, stories with Thirty Days of Night. They yeah. they even like adapted a bunch of the comics into a into a book series. Yeah, I think yeah. But back to the werewolf thing. Yeah, there's so much you can do with werewolves, and we just need more werewolf stuff. And, and this uh, is a step in the right direction. It is. Of werewolf representation. They're not just scary monsters. They're people and they can be funny too. They're people and wolves too. Yes. Anyways, that's it for the news this week. So why don't we move on to what we've been watching. Why don't you start us off, John? What have you been watching this week? I've been watching a lot of TV this week. And what I want to talk about is Sex Education, the second season. But sort of an overall, the overall gist of, you know the first season as well, because, obviously. Um, it is a funny coming-of-age series. It's the story of Otis, played by Asia Butterfield. He's the nervous and somewhat pedantic son of a sex therapist, played by Gillian Anderson. You'd know her as, obviously, Scully, from X-Files, and from a myriad, 
myriad other things, like American Gods. She's in the next season of The Crown as Margaret Thatcher. She's Hannibal Lecter's therapist in Hannibal, and she totally knows what he's doing. Yeah, and she's awesome. Uh, When he gives someone at school advice on an issue about their sex life, the word spreads, and he begins a clinic for the students to learn more than the school currently can teach them about sex, about issues around that, relationships, and all of that. It's And he's gained these sort of this sort of insight basically through osmosis. Yeah, because of his mother's job, he sort of has gained all of this knowledge about this stuff. But he's, he's still, still a pedantic still little shit himself. A pedantic little <laughs> shitty teenager as well, so... He, goes he, he knows this bullshit. stuff and is able to help people, but also has absolutely no idea how to act around girls. It's, it's he's not the, what he's doing. Yeah, he yeah. The it stars Gillian Anderson, obviously Asia Butterfield, and I think the isn't bur- it Asia Asia Butterfield? Yeah, whichever. He's fantastic in this. Oh yeah, he was one of the finalists for Spider Man before Tom Holland was cast. He was. He was. Uh, also. Oh, and I think I might be pronouncing this wrong. Nakuti Gatwa, he plays the best friend of Otis. He's fantastic. He's fantastic. Uh, his plot lines are, are about um, his sexuality and how people are poking fun at him. And then the second season, it's more about what who he wants to be with. And sort of his relationship stuff. But that's still a really deep... Yeah, it's a deep look at sort of... The homosexuality and how people can... Be... Awful about it. Which we're going to see in our deep dive today. Um, You've also got Emma Mackey... As Maeve. The... Who helps... Who helps helps run run the the clinic. She's a fascinating character. And brilliantly performed. Mm. I believe she's going to be in Kenneth Branagh's Death on the Nile next year, which, fingers crossed, because she is a star in the making. Yes. She's a star in the making. Sex Education is her first uh, credited role, and she does need to be more stuff. She's brilliant. And the supporting cast for the show is incredible as well. You've got... It's... Yeah. It's actually... So none of it none of it's particularly crass either. Yeah. It's this really touching sort of It's heartfelt. Heartfelt look at what it's like to be a teenager and you're just not getting the information you need. Yeah. It touches on really important issues like consent, sexuality, gender, trauma, sexual assault, pressure coming from your parents, uh self harm, broken marriages among myriad other issues and they touch on all of them with grace, nuance, pathos and humour, most importantly. The second season focuses a great lot of one plot line on trauma from sexual assault and they tackle it so well. It's just a thing to be seen. It's a fantastic series the acting is spot on. The it's set in 
Britain, but with little bits of sort of an American high school stuck in there, like varsity jackets and certain ways people interact. It's sort of an amalgamation. And there was a surprise cameo by someone yes, uh, it, in the final episode of the second season. Which was so That good. just surprised the hell out of me. Yeah. Um, I also watched the final episode of Castle Rock, the most recent season, because we got stuck watching a bunch of other shows, and, you know... They didn't air the they, final they episode of the season. final episode of the season when they did in America. Year. Why not? So, I don't know. I have no idea. Just weird things. Where is it ended up in oh. Australia? Because we don't get Hulu here. Foxtel. Oh, ah, Foxtel. There you go. Yeah. That explains uh, it. it. Yeah, it somewhat stuck the landing. As you know how we described the show earlier, the first season was set... But it's all set in the town of Castle Rock in Maine... Setting for countless, countless Stephen King things. This season focused on misery and Jerusalem's lot and Salem's lot and stories about that and the sun dog and all of that. It, they somewhat stuck the landing. Hmm. A character comes back from the first season and you, it brings for some questions about who this person really is. And Harley and I have our own theories, but to start going into that would be to really spoil things, potentially. Does it seem like like maybe this person might turn up again in a future season? Oh, definitely. Yes. You can count on it. I believe so. They somewhat stuck the landing with this episode. It's unbalanced. It favors one side... Yeah, of the does. story way more than the other. But they were the sort of focal characters at the beginning of the season anyway. Yeah, so it bookends it quite yeah. nicely. The season goes in a fascinating direction with its scope because it's something that affects the entire town. Not just a few people here and there. This is a big, big deal. Deal that happens to the entire town. And it's going to have continued. And I believe it'll have ramifications in the third season. So I know this is an anthology. They're getting around. I know this is an anthology series. So do they ever reference the first season and the events that happen? Yes, yes, yes. So you say anthology series? Not really. Not, not really. It focuses on different characters, but it is all in the same. Yeah. Okay. Like there's a predominantly different cast each. Yeah. Season, but. Stuff that happened in the first, first season, season it directly affects the second one. Yeah. And I'm assuming the first two seasons, seasons yeah. will directly affect the third. Yeah. The acting is all around very solid. You've got uh, Tim Robbins as Pop Merrill. Fantastic. Absolutely masterful. Like, being a Stephen King alumni aside, he was perfect for mm. this role. Uh, you've got... So many other fantastic actors that we've already talked about in the previous part. Uh, the cinematography and the tone are really, really nice. And they end this season, and basically this is not a spoiler. In the only exactly way Exactly where the story of Annie Wilkes should go from here. Okay. It ends at the beginning. It ends at the beginning, and it's 
fantastic. Um, not in a cyclical sense. Not in a cyclical sense, but you know where this is going yeah. for her. Yeah. And it's fantastic. You see one name on one thing and you go, shit. Oh, shit. <laughs> shit. But yeah, it's fantastic. Um, I also watched another Stephen King thing, this time co-written by his son, uh, In the Tall Grass, which is a Netflix original. A movie. It's based time. on a no- yeah. Yes, it's based on a novel by Stephen King and his son Joe Hill. It's the story... Okay. When heading across the country, siblings slash twins? There were twins in the book, but I'm not sure if they are. Irish twins. Yeah. Um, Cal and Becky hear a young boy's voice from a field of tall grass. Things go absolutely batshit insane after they enter the tall grass to look for him. It's directed and... Written slash adapted by Vincenzo Natale. The the cinematography is fantastic. The way that he films this field, because it's basically all set in the tall grass, the way he films it is so brilliant. He brings real beauty out of what is a very simple setting. In the in the way the the camera gets moved around is so creative. It is. And there is some very cool spooky moments. Like, this movie goes into sort of weird time-loopy directions. And, yeah, it's just very cool because what the deal is with the tall grass is, and it's said a few times, the grass doesn't move dead things. As long as something's alive, the the tall grass sort of moves things around, and you it's very difficult to really set yourself in one place. Basically, lost. basically, the experience of watching it is disorienting. Yeah, you easily get lost, which is purposeful. Yeah, it's, it's very deliberate. You never get a good sense of location or landmarks or by design. Yeah. It's it also stars Patrick Wilson in a, a performance that is so brilliant cuz he goes to sort of a weird religious place with place it. with it, which is so fascinating cuz he is quite religious and so Yeah, he goes to a very wild place, very sort of almost animalistic to a degree. And yeah, it's a good sort of spooky movie, and it has a really nice tone. And the other thing is, it does feel somewhat disconnected from the rest of the Kingverse, I guess you could call it. But you could imply some stuff. You could. But it's... Have, do you know of a movie called Triangle? Yes. It's on the it's list. Si- it's similar to that yeah. in the way that it sort of... Disorients you. Disorients you and runs through scenes that we've already seen mm. again, but from a different perspective. It also... It sort of congratulates you on paying attention. Yes. To things. Because yes. some stuff do- doesn't add up until it shows how it adds up and you feel good. Having, yeah. you know, kept up with it. Yeah. So, 
I recommend it. If it's not already on your list, it is. Put it yeah. on your list. Yeah. It, the cinematography a- is really, really pretty. It's a pretty movie. And it's such a creative concept. Yeah. As well. It, my favorite shots are when they, like, raise it up out of the tall grass, and it looks just like. It, it does looks weird, like an ocean of grass. It does this weird perspective thing where it makes everything just look small. Yeah. And, like, as, as we were watching the movie, when it did one of those pull-out shots, I was like... And then the lawnmower goes across the grass. Because <laughs> it, it plays with size in that sense. That's part of the disorienting... And there were a few moments where, when someone's getting attacked, I swear, off in the distance, I could faintly hear the Pokemon encounter music just starting. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Also, the sound design for this movie is incredible. It's directional. It's... The surround sound is fantastic. Um, But yeah, moving on to Harley. Uh, So... Mine's going to be a lot shorter. Yes. I'm just talking about two of the things I watched. Uh, the third thing we watched was Joker. Yeah. Uh, which I'm sure we're going to end up talking about to some degree in the best of list. Yeah. So we're going to. Uh, so I'm going to skip talking about that right now. Uh, I watched David Lynch's Netflix short film, What Did Jack Do? Uh, where he is basically doing, the, doing this. Uh, Noir, kind of brutal pastiche and the noir, noir sort of stuff, uh, alongside a monkey. Yes. Uh, it's very Lynch. Yeah. This is his wheelhouse. And the monkey's pretty good, too. It's very funny. Basically, how they do the monkey is they have the monkey sitting there, and instead of the monkey's mouth moving, it's superimposed over that is a person's mouth moving. So, it makes you feel weird. It's about 15 minutes long, or cl- a little bit over that, and... Tatatabon! Yeah, it's strange. That's the one word I can say for it. Strange. It feels like... There's not much I can say about it. You just have to watch itself it. itself, because it's sort of indescribable in a way. It's Lynch. It's Lynch. But what it... How... He got this done through Netflix. It well, he didn't really shows you. He didn't get it done through Netflix. It was uh, produced independently. It's actually premiered in 2017 yeah. at a like, film festival. Well, he it's being distributed yeah. on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, just the fact that he managed to get it made at all is it really shows you how much clout he has. Mm. That he can just walk into a room somewhere and say. Monkey movie. Uh, I want to interrogate a monkey for my next movie. Well, it was only $10,000 budget. Like, <laughs> yeah, and he's just like, and everyone's just like, Fantastic! What does it mean, David? He's like, Mean? Funny. It's like, what does it mean? There's, oh, my friend, it doesn't mean anything. There are a lot of pe- reviews on IMDb, which, just don't look at reviews on IMDb, it's a trash fire, but... A lot of reviews saying, oh, it's just stupid. He's tricking all of the art film crowd, and why are people looking at it like it's so deep? 
because it's David Lynch, he does things for a reason, even if he's trying to poke fun and take the piss. Like, he knows exactly what he's doing. Like, Nothing's an accident. Like, he has the clout at this point where he can just do whatever the hell yeah. project he pleases. And this is basically him showing that. I wonder he, if he'll ever do... He also stars in it. I wonder if he'll ever do something, another project that's, like, uh, large-scale, like a theatrically released movie or, a, or another TV show or something. I feel like that's... I'm not sure. I feel like I would be simul... I, I would be totally unsurprised if he never did, but I would also be totally unsurprised if, like, there was an announcement, like, tomorrow from Netflix or Amazon or one of these places that are like, we gave David Lynch $20 million and told him to do whatever the hell he wanted with it. <laughs> uh, because you can't tell Lynch what to do. Exactly. He'll just do whatever he so pleases with his art. Yeah. There's something so refreshing by that. In the in an era where studios are micromanaging shit, it's so good to see an auteur like Lynch just throw shit to the ball and see what sticks. Yeah. It's like, I want to do this noir interview with a monkey and interrogate him on a, the murder, a murder and his relationship with the chicken. It's like, one of the lines from it is literally... I know why the chicken crossed the road. And he delivers it completely straight. Uh, it's just so... It's a flex. It's a flex. It's David Lynch just flexing. He's like, Haha, I can get this made. Screw you all. Yeah, it's... it's, And it's so great to see. Yeah. Like, Dad was what... Dad was out here when he, we put it on. And he was just like, What? Yeah, it's, whole it's time, very it's funny. It's hilarious. The second thing I'm going to talk about is, and this is probably going to be something I'll talk about next week as well, is this has been the penultimate episode of Arrow, uh, which is essentially sort of a soft pilot, yeah, stealth it's a pilot. backdoor pilot for that. Backdoor pilot for Green Arrow and the Canaries. Uh, I quite liked it. Yeah, and... So did I. It takes things in a separate direction. It has a different energy to Arrow it as does. well. Uh, so it's not going to be this complete replacement. It's got a really compelling mystery at the end. Yeah. Uh, and the trio of heroes in this show, they work so well off each other. Yeah, well, things are looking because... pretty good for it because it was apparently the mm. highest rated episode of Arrow this season that wasn't the uh the crossover episode. Yeah. Yeah. So And it's like you were talking about IM, you were talking about like IMDB scores, Jean. I went into the IMDB scores because I think it's like the lowest rated and it's all like, yeah, feminism <laughs> It's the same lunatics who go after Batwoman and Supergirl. Mm. Yeah. No, but it's uh, People hated this ep- this uh, week's episode of Batwoman. Sorry to derail just for a second. There's only one moment in it that I didn't like, where a character's like, hmm, a person getting a face getting transplant. A face transplant That's impossible. To That's impossible. It's like, you live in a world that has a man who can run at the speed of light. None of these... You kind of have to reassess... None of these people are logical actors, Sean. None of these people are doing... uh, are approaching this in good faith. 
They're all there, you know, Nancy Drew, Batwoman, they're all just like... No, 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 no. I think like No, 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 no. In, in, in the show... I know, but I'm just saying that you, you were you were mentioning the, the reviews for that episode of Batwoman, and I know, like, because that... I know what happened in that episode because it made news. And it's yeah. just like, people just can't... Yeah. So, it's God like, forbid, a show about a lesbian character has an episode about her being a lesbian. Hmm. It's like, it's like, I'm sorry, you know, incel white guys, but a show with a lesbian lead is gonna talk about homosexuality. Yeah. I'm sorry that it offends you so, but what did you expect? That's like the real reason that it's sitting at the 3.8, that yeah. woman show on IMDb. It's, it's a perfectly fine people, episode. And the people who, you know, review that, half of them probably didn't even watch the thing. Um, yeah. like, and it's like, oh, just one more thing about that. It's like, how can you be so full of bigotry and hatred and like, in massive quotation marks, superheroes? It's completely missing the entire point of superheroes. Like, to, like the entire point is just be good to people. On the Green Arrow and the Canary thing... There is set up, obviously, throughout like the flash forwards yeah. in the past two seasons that lead into Green Arrow and the Canaries. Uh, so you need that relevant context to yeah. get what's going to go on in the new series. Uh, I'm sure all of those flash forward stuff is on YouTube somewhere. So finish yeah. that stuff and, before you get into and that. Uh, honestly, you should definitely just watch Everything leading up to you know in the Canaries to really get it. Yeah, I wonder if they'll uh, find out find some way to force them into a crossover if they if they roll it into the series proper. The, the Legends proper. of Tomorrow have a time shift. Yeah. Exactly. That, that's who I <laughs> so, am. That's like, who I am. Anyway, it's no, it's really solid. Uh, All of the shows have had an interesting time with the. You know, post post crisis stuff because, yeah, you know, as this is sort of that back, you know, backdoor pilot, it still felt like a pilot. Yeah, in that sense, uh, but I'll, de- I'm definitely interested to see what happens. Yeah, it was on the show when it, it gets TV. picked up. It was a fantastic bit of TV. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's, it's probably getting picked up. Um. And the CW's already got that Superman and Lois show, and they've got a reboot of Walker, Texas Ranger, starring the one of the stars from Supernatural, and I don't expect that to be very successful, because that's... Jensen Ackles? No, the other one. No, Padalecki. Um, so Jensen Ackles is still free to play Batman. Please. What would uh, he play Batman on? Batwoman. Okay. But, um... They have that. And eventually the Superman one. Is. And yeah. then they've got these two backdoor pilots. They've got the backdoor pilot in Arrow. They've got another backdoor pilot in the upcoming final season of The 100. Mm. And I'd like to see them just pick The 100 one up as well. I'd like... Yeah, because I mean, why not? They don't normally do... They normally pick up three to four shows a year. So yeah. just, you know... Yeah. Uh, just another thing about the Green Arrow and the Canaries. Catherine McNamara... Who plays the new Green Arrow, Oliver's daughter from the future? 
she's been fantastic in the role. She carries on attributes attributes mostly of Oliver. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just fascinated to see... Her half-brother has more traits from... Someone he's not actually related to. Yeah, not related Uh, to, which is bizarre, but sure. But there's a whole lot of dynamics in this new... That they set up in Green Island Canaries. They're going to be fascinating going forward. Yeah. Something that Arrow hasn't done. Yeah. It's... Honestly... The more I think about it, the more excited I am yeah. for it getting picked up. I was always going to be excited for the Superman one. Yeah. Let's be fair. I was I was more on the fence for Green Arrow and the Canaries, because I didn't know where they would go. But now that we know where they're going... I'm just looking yeah. at the CW's list of shows at the moment. I think I actually think it's pretty likely that they'll just pick up all four of those shows. Walker, the two yeah, DC yeah. ones, and The 100. Because I'm just looking at this. Supernatural's ending this year, Arrow's ending this year, and The 100 is ending this year. Yeah. So there you go. If you replace all three of those with spin-offs. And they've started Katie Keene. Yeah. As well. And then, then you've just got the one new show that you may be... Uh, you may be go-ahead with. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, I'm excited for how this continues on. So, what did you look at, Lawson? Well, I unintentionally had a themed week, and that theme uh, was the AIDS virus, <laughs> weirdly. Oh, boy. Um, this was not intentional. This was just because I watch everything in chronological order, uh, and this just seems to be have been a thing that movies were talking about towards the end of 1993. Um, so I started off... I mean, good. Yes, yeah. So I started off this week with, uh, And the Band Played On, which is a 1993 HBO TV movie. Uh, it's a historical drama, it's a true story. It's based on a book by the same name by, uh, Randy Schiltz, which came out in 1987. And it's directed by Roger Spottiswood, who went on to direct your favourite Bond movie, Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh... Thank you. It's it's the, the the discovery of AIDS. It's it's a non-fiction. Well, it, it, it's actors and everything. It's not a documentary, but it's it's covering the true story of the discovery of AIDS and the work of the CDC in the eighties to try and contain it, to figure out what it is, to try and cure it, to try and make sure it doesn't spread, and the infuriating lack of cooperation extended to them by all avenues of society, the media, the government. It's an infuriating movie. It's so, so frustrating to watch because, sure, they might not have been able to stop AIDS entirely, but, God, they could have contained it, you know? People's lives would have been saved. And it wasn't really until it moved over into the heterosexual population that politicians actually started paying attention. Um, When it was just killing gay people, it didn't get any play in the media, any coverage. Uh, no one was particularly interested and worried about it when it was just gay people dying. And it's it's all about, like, the politics and the red tape of it. It's these people working in the CDC, they can't get funding from the Reagan administration. Um, Reagan does not come off well in this at all. They use actual news footage and archive footage of speeches and things and, and news reports. Yeah. Uh, blood banks refuse to screen for the virus because they don't have a 100% test for the virus. They have like a 
75% of cases you can pick it up. Blood banks refuse to do that because it'll cost them money and it's not until like the situation gets way out of hand and, and a whole bunch of people have been infected through transfusions that they actually start doing what CDC is telling them to do. Yeah. Um, and then you've got these opportunistic doctors. You've got this, this guy played by Alan Alda who does not come off well at all. Like he spends so much of his time. He doesn't really, in the movie, he comes off not really caring about actually figuring out the virus and helping people. It's getting his Nobel Prize for figuring out the mm. virus and helping people to the point where he does things to sort of sabotage the other people who are working on the virus. Um, and like throws all these hissy fits when they get advancements instead of him and really just creates this absurd traffic jam in the whole, uh, in the whole process. It's infuriating, but you've got these people to latch onto this core group of, of people working for the, the CDC with our, our focus through the film, our audience surrogate is a guy called uh, Don Francis. who's played by Matthew Modine. And he's a guy who's really trying to get things done. He was, uh, he has this backstory where he worked on uh, on the Ebola virus when it first started to surface out of Africa. Um, so he's got this this he's like a true believer. He wants to help people. Yeah. Um, he he has some someone asked him at some point in the movie, "You hate all this red tape. You hate all this bureaucratic crap. You're not good at dealing with it. Why did you join the CDC?" And he said, "The CDC is where the diseases are." Um, he wants to cure diseases and that's the best place for him to do it uh you've got this supporting cast of activists and victims and officials and things everyone wanted to be in this movie ian mckellen is in this movie lily tomlin is in this movie richard Gere is in this movie steve martin angelica houston i mentioned alan alder um some of them like steve martin's there for a single scene richard Gere has two scenes uh everyone sort of in Hollywood sort of latched onto this movie as, as sort of a, to give it a, a, a boost, to give it, yeah. make, give it some time in the public eye. Uh, and it really became kind of a big thing. And a whole bunch of people got nominated for like awards and things. Swoozy Kurtz is in like three minutes of the movie and is nominated for best supporting actress at the Emmys. Um, Did she earn it? I haven't seen all of the other, um, TV movies from 1993, maybe she does, but I find it difficult to believe that that three minutes is... It, it's a good three minutes. She's, she's good in the movie, don't get me wrong. It's just kind of overboard when it's a three-minute performance. Yeah. Uh, Ian McKellen's doing an American accent. And? Pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah? Um, he's playing a real-life guy, so he had to. Um, Fair enough. It's Can't good. just make someone British out of nowhere. No, uh, it's it's well staged. It's clearly a TV movie and the camera setups and things, but it, it's a professional one, especially considering 1993. Uh, yeah. It does a great job of presenting a ton of information in a really streamlined manner. Like this is this extraordinarily diffuse 600 page book that's just this sprawling account of the AIDS virus in the early 80s. And it's, it's not something that really lends itself to being uh, streamlined into a into a 120-minute narrative. Um, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. There's a whole bunch of stuff happening at once, people who never meet each other, doing all sorts of things all over the place. But they do a really good job of making it work. Uh, it's, it's excellent. It's affecting. 
It's emotional. It's infuriating. Raises your blood pressure. But uh, it's a really great movie. And it's a really great... So much like Philadelphia. It is, yes. But it, it's it's an excellent education on 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 what actually happened like that the mechanics of how the aids epidemic started and the bureaucracy the, of the it. true failure of uh the american government and the american media to do uh anything, anything. worthwhile really in stopping it until it was too late um and they they talk about like obviously it it's not just a disease that happened in America, like there's some stuff in France, but obviously it's all centered around America in this movie. I'm sure that if they made a movie centering on the French things, and the French government probably wouldn't have come off very well either. Um, it really was just a universal failure, one of like a true, just true tragedy. Tra- true tragedy. Um, and the people who stonewalled it should really be ashamed of themselves. Uh, I watched The Nightmare Before Christmas. Which I know you guys love. Uh, yep. 1993 stop motion children's fantasy musical directed by Henry Selleck. It's visually stunning. It's got this incredible intricate design. You guys talked about it a few weeks back, so I'm not going to bother with the synopsis, but it's got this great creative art style and characters. The craftsmanship is just meticulous. It's totally groundbreaking. Um, studios like Leica, Lycra, who did, uh, you know, Coraline and Kubo and Two Strings and things yep. like that, they make their, their movies are uh, are stop motion movies. All of them. They have a lot to thank this movie for. Yeah, I hate to do this to you guys, but I didn't really like much else about it. Um, That's fair. It's not for everyone. The story is threadbare, and most of the characters lack three dimensional personality. Um, it's only seventy six minutes long, but I feel like even that's too long for the story that they're telling. Uh, Tim Burton originally sort of pitched it when he was working for Disney as an hour-long TV special, which would have ended up being like 44 minutes with ads. And that seems to me about the appropriate length um, because I just don't feel like there's enough going on here. Uh, Danny Elfman is capable of so much better than the songs that he's written in here. The music's... The music is good, but the songs are, for me at least, with the exception maybe of the opener, the This Is Halloween, uh, just instantly forgettable for me. And even the This Is Halloween, the only thing I remember is This Is Halloween, This Is Halloween, over and over and over. I don't really remember anything else about it. I, I suppose maybe I sort of remember bits of the What's This? What's This? And again, all I remember is What's This? What's This? Um, what a reputation. It's Danny Elfman doing the singing. Yeah. The voice acting, with the uh, the exception of Ken Page as the bad guy, is pretty monotone, I found. Ken Page, by the way, um, played Old Deuteronomy in the video recording of Cats. Um, oh. I did like the scene where he goes and gives out sinister presents to children. That <laughs> was my favourite part of the movie. Uh, but perhaps- We are going to have to cancel Christmas. Sorry, what? But perhaps he just had to be there. Perhaps he just had to see it as a kid. Uh, as yeah, it's a, it's definitely something that we're attached to because we've watched yeah. it when and, we were really and young. And because we've had sort of the macabre and ghoulish as a main feature of our lives forever. Like, our house is full of skulls. Like, not real ones. Full. Of nice cover. fake skulls. Like, 
we love we love the spooky, we love the macabre, we love the gothic, and it's it's our sort of thing. I, I disagree with you on the music. I remember all of the songs. But how much of that do you think is repetition? We've watched it a lot. Like, if you were just seeing it for the first time, would you be humming any of them? There, there's no yeah. real way to tell. Yeah, well, yeah there's no Honestly. real way to tell, but... It's a movie that's right up my alley. It helped inform. It's a personal favorite. It helped inform our interests. Yeah. So it's really hard to divorce ourselves from that itself as as a. I get the impression that, that this for you guys is sort of my hocus pocus. Like it sort of is, Probably. is yeah, the I same that kind feeling. of formative thing of an interest in the spooky. Yeah. 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 That's a good comparison. Um, that and like the Adams family and the monsters and I used to love the monsters. Yeah, the monsters is straight up good. Yeah, my nana and my but, granddad had Foxtel, and they were the only people I knew who had Foxtel. So I know whenever I was at their house, I watched the monsters. Yeah, I watched a lot of monsters but, uh, and murder. She wrote <laughs> nothing on that television uh, aired uh, later than the nineteen seventies. <laughs> HR Puff yeah, and stuff too. Oh. A, a lot of these sort of spooky kid stuff were formative for us. And, you know, I love Nightmare Before Christmas. I love the music. I love This Is Halloween. I can do every voice on that song. Like, but I have to say, I, yeah, I agree your criticisms about the are accurate. Your criticisms are accurate. It's just I don't necessarily agree with them. Like, I know that they've been threatening to do a live-action remake. Oh, God. And I don't know what the hell that looks like. Bad. Bad. It looks bad. <laughs> have you seen the costumes that they have at Disneyland? Ugh. Like the Jack Skellington one? It's cool. It's cool to see him sort of walking around and stuff. But I don't need to see a giant skeleton do it. Have you guys heard the Look, original? Live action doesn't work. This is all based on a poem that Tim Burton wrote. Mm. Have you guys heard the original poem? Not for a while. There's a version of it on the Blu-ray. It's probably on YouTube, too. Was read by Christopher Lee. It's fantastic. Oh yes, uh, on in the special features are the. Did you watch Vincent films? Yes, I did. I watched Vincent. Is Vincent's very good? It is. Um, Next up, I watched Six Degrees of Separation, uh, which came out in 1993. It's a drama. It's directed by Fred Scapisi. It's based on John Guare's 1990 play of the same name, and it's about these, this upper-crust couple, Flan and Wisa Ketteridge, played by Donald Sutherland and Stockard Channing. Um, and Flan. Yes, Flan. Hmm. They're tricked by a young man named uh, Paul, who's played by Will Smith in an early role. Uh, he claims, he comes to their house one night and he claims to be the victim of a mugging, and he claims to be a friend of their, their children from uh, college. And he says that he's just gotten mugged down in Central Park, which is what they overlook, their apartment overlooks. And he sort of weeds his way into their life and uh, really impresses them with all this, de- you know, dazzling display of charisma and knowledge and things. And then it quickly becomes clear that, and he says that he's the son of Sidney Poitier, the actor. Um, that they, cause, cause these are, these are like rich people. These are privileged people yeah. that, you know, their, their kids go to this, expensive like Yale or something I think um, and it quickly becomes apparent that he is not the son of Sidney Poitier he does not know their children he has not been mugged the, the classic con artist 
He's a con artist, but he's not looking for anything. He's not stealing anything. He's just sort of come to have a night, a, a dinner party, basically. He sort of he's just doing disappears. doing it because he cares. He's doing it because it, well, not even that. He, he, he wants to be a part of that level, that, that strata, even if it's just for a night. And they figure this out and they start to, all of their friends, you know, are starting to get the same thing happen to them. And it's told, it's, it's, it's all framed by the Ketteridge's recounting these, the story of what happened to them over a series of like fancy dinner parties. So you'll get like little episodic installments. Oh, this happened since the last time we all met. And they'll start doing this recount and it's got that sort of patter to it. That's that very practiced anecdotal thing of the, the people telling this story that they've practiced over and over to, you know, bring out at, at, at events. And the whole thing sort of goes to the shallowness and the emptiness of their lives, really. Like they're, they're not, they're so far removed from real life, these people, the Ketteridges. Mm. They're so far removed from everyday people and, and everyday problems and, and, like there's this great scene where uh where after they find out that Paul is an imposter, Donald Sutherland and Soccer Channing are just fretting around in their living room going, Oh, has he stolen anything? Oh, is 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 the painting still on the wall? Oh yes, the painting's still on the wall. Oh, we could have been murdered. Throat slit from ears to ear and just like and Donald Sutherland's playing just the most hyperventilating, you know, <laughs> privileged prick. He's such a so, great because he's a scary looking dude. Yeah, he he's really funny in this. Um, he's really really funny in this. He's playing a sort of, you know, hand wringing, pearl clutching, pearl clutching. Oh, oh yeah. the horror, the humanity! Oh, someone needs to catch him now. So Will Smith's character is not villainous. No, no. He you get the impression as the movie goes on that he probably has has some sort of mental illness. Um, right. That there's that there is something diagnosable going on there, and he probably needs help more than he needs prison, uh, yeah. which is what Donald Sutherland wants for him. But you get all this great sort of patter because because of the framing device, it'll cut in through the the explanations of the story, but then it'll cut back to the framing device so that Donald Sutherland can make some pithy comment, and Stocker Channing can you know sort of play off of him for a bit, and just for like a, a brief. 15 second thing where they, they comment on, where they comment outside of the narrative itself before going back into the narrative. It's, it's a really fun, um, little, little script. It's brilliantly written. Uh, it's, the whole thing is them trying to puzzle out this guy, who he is and why he does what it, what it, what it is. Um, so is there a sense of the unreliable narrator? Kind of. But not really. In the fact that they are ju- they are over-exaggerating certain aspects. Well, not really. The unreliable narrator stuff more comes in the framing devices. The flashbacks that we see, you get the impression are all accurate. But the little bits right. of colour that they add in the framing device don't always seem to add up with the flashbacks. Right. Like the, the story that they're telling to... We get the real version of the story through the flashbacks, but we also see how they're colouring it for all of their friends. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, as I said, excellent dialogue. There's great commentary on this barely concealed 
white left wing racism and snobbery where they like to pre- we like to uh pretend you know people who are on the left or you get those those sort of you know rich philanthropists they like to pretend that they're so you know high minded about all this stuff but really yeah. at the end of the day they've got the same prejudices as anyone else there's this excru- the get out kind of yeah, thing. yes exactly there's this excruciating scene where to thank them for helping him with his in quotation marks mugging, uh, Will Smith cooks them dinner and he brings, he serves dinner and they all sit down and they're all talking and they're all having a great time to, oh, what a wonderful young man Will Smith is. Tell us about your father, Sidney Poitier. And, um, Will Smith at one point, he gets up briefly and leaves the room and he's only gone for about 30 seconds and he's getting the rest of the food and bringing it back in. But Donald Sutherland starts, you can see like all of the color drain from Donald Sutherland's face. Oh, what's he doing? What's he doing? He starts saying, hello. Excuse me. Hello. Hello. And it's just this so awkward, excruciating thing where the whole conversation just stops for 30 seconds. And all of a sudden it's just this white guy who is concerned about the black guy in his house. Uh, it's, it's brilliantly written and they open it out so much from the play. Because, of course, you can't do the framing of the play, the framing of the movie with the play. You can't mm-hmm. cut back and forth with all that patter like that. So they've opened it out in such a brilliant way. Um, Ian McKellen is in it again. i got a lot of good Ian McKellen in this. He plays a South African man in this. Hmm. Like so? Yes. Yeah. And a good one. Good. Um, That's good. But in the – they're talking about the arts in the scene that he's in. And would you believe it that – someone brings up to him Cats and Lord of the Rings. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> and, what do they say about cats? Oh, it, like the joke is um, part of Will Smith's con, part of Paul's con is that he's saying that Sidney Poitier is directing a live-action adaptation of Cats. <laughs> Good God. But then it's all like... Um, it, it, and it all goes to sort of underline the whole... Uh, the two-faced nature of of how these rich people talk to each other because they were like, oh, oh, that sounds interesting. Oh, what's that? Oh, could we be could we be extras and things like that? But oh, then, like, no. like later on, when they mention this all to their children in telling the story, kids are like, "You hate cats. You said that it was a perversion of the stage." <laughs> Like, but, but the moment they like get close to like that, they, they can, they can almost, it's still, the six degrees of separation thing. Oh, we're one degree from, they think that they're one degree from Sydney Poitier. They could meet yeah. Sydney, Sydney Poitier. They could be in a movie. So all of a sudden they love cats. Yeah. Um, when, if you don't love cats, don't lie. Yeah. Don't. Because you cannot back it up. Mm. Uh, Sydney, uh, Smith is, uh, Will Smith is playing against type this is a very early role for him um he's he's quite good a a little rough around the edges i'm not sure that Mm. it's the most nuanced performance of that character that you could possibly get donald sutherland's very funny and blustery and but stocker channing is the heart of it she's the one who actually learns something from the whole experience and sort of comes to kind of identify with paul as she finds out more about him um, she was nominated for an Oscar for the performance. Uh, the only Oscar that the movie was nominated for. But it's. Deserved? I think so, yeah. Um, but it's an excellent. She gets one great scene at the very end where she gets to really 
she gets her like Oscar audition scene, basically. Yeah. You know, the, the you watch it and you're like, oh, that's probably what they showed is the clip when they were announcing the nominees. Yeah. Um, considering you can always pick that, it. Yeah. Considering the fact that 93 was a pretty packed year, mm. that means a lot. Uh, but it's an excellent drama. It's got this sly comedic edge uh, and a really interesting point of view on the elite. You guys should should check it out if that sounds interesting because mm. it is brilliantly written. Like just What's the it script. Six, six degrees, six of, degrees of separation. I just let me check on this app that I've got here. See if it's on streaming anywhere. It's currently streaming on Stan. Yeah, oh. I have to check it out. Yeah. Um, next, I started off my animated DC movies marathon. Uh, so, fair warning to everyone: this will be what I talk about on the podcast for the next six or seven weeks. There are 53 Time of these. to get into my wheelhouse. Yes, there are 53 of these movies that I'll be watching in succession. I will still talk about stuff that I see in cinemas, obviously. But, uh, yes, it's all going to be very DC. Just be, be glad that you, that we weren't doing the podcast when I did my Scooby-Doo animated movie marathon. That took me a month and I was seriously regretting it by the end. Um, but I started off with Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which came out in 1993, directed by Eric, Eric Radomski and Bruce Tim. It's a theatrical film. It was released in cinemas, but it's a spin-off of the animated series, the 90s animated series of Batman. And it was originally going to be direct-to-video, but they moved it into theatrical. Uh, it's about this new villain that arrives in Gotham, the Phantasm. It's a sort of this spectre-looking fellow and he's killing mobsters and batman is blaine batman of course voiced by kevin conroy uh and at the same time bruce wayne's former flame andrea beaumont uh who's played by dana delaney returns to gotham and you sort of get i suppose the closest that the animated series ever came to an origin story for batman you get sort of flashbacks to his early days and him coming to terms with his life as batman juxtaposed with his courtship of, of Andrea. I have no history with the series. I didn't really watch it. I've, I've probably caught a few episodes here and there, and a lot of the releases of these DC animated movies have episodes of the series on the discs, so they will, I will be watching uh, quite a few of them. Um, you know, what's two times... Uh, probably 40 of these releases have at least two episodes on there, so I'll have watched like 80 episodes by the end. Um, but I enjoyed this movie. It's very noir-like. It's it's an emotionally-centred story. It's not about the villains or the, the spectacular stuff or anything like that. It's, a, it's really about Bruce Wayne Batman and what he's given up to be Batman and how that affects him emotionally. It's a very old-fashioned private eye sort of thing. The Phantasm's a cool villain. Got cool powers, never explained uh, how the Phantasm has those powers, but all right. Uh, and you've got some really good set pieces as well. The finale is quite spectacular. Um, the animation looks good, but it is low scale. Uh, I, I Just watching some of the more recent ones, I, I don't think we've ever really mentioned it, that the movies that I talk about are ones I watched about two weeks ago. Like I, when we announce when we announce the the movie that we're going to watch next week at the end of the podcast, that's a movie I've watched in the past weeks because so, I'm trying to give you guys 
uh, a decent amount of time to be able to watch it rather than just sort of scrabbling at the 11th hour to watch it just so we're all on the same page when we come to the deep dive. So I'm operating on a sort of a staggered release, except for cinema releases, which I talk about when I see them. Um, But I've watched a a number of the more recent ones now, and the animation improves greatly. There's sort of... uh, They took advantage of the advances in computers and things. Uh, the music by Shirley Walker is just gorgeous. Um, all of this choir stuff, it's fantastic. Uh, really high quality voice work. The aspect ratio confused me a little bit because, because it was originally planned as a direct to video movie, they were going to do it in one by one, three, three by one, but then they moved it to cinema. So they did it in one, seven, eight by one, but neither that neither of those aspect ratios is the aspect ratio that it's actually done in. So no matter what, so no matter what version you're watching, and both versions were available on the disc, it's cropped in some way, be it at the top or at the sides. Right. I chose to watch it in the in the widescreen because I figured if it was in cinemas first, I'll just watch it yeah. in the cinema version. But it was kind of annoying. I had to do research on which aspect ratio to watch it in, which is a little bit rough. But, yeah, it's a good start. Um, fingers crossed they're all this good. Uh, and I would say that, for the most part, most of them are. Uh, so, just for context for the audience, Batman Mask of the Phantasm is based on the comic book story Batman Year Two, uh, which was written by Mike W. Barr, uh, and instead of the Phantasm, the villain is the Reaper, who was Gotham's first vigilante. So there are, obviously, differences. Mask of the Phantasm, Phantasm isn't a straight adaptation, but it takes a hell of a lot of influence from Year Two, uh, which is not the best story. Uh, and then finally this week, I watched Batman and Mr. Freeze Sub-Zero which is another spin-off of the animated series that came out in 1998, directed by Boyd Kirkland. And it takes place after a couple of the Mr. Freeze episodes in the animated series. Of course, one of the most famous being Heart of Ice, which is is basically the Mr. Freeze story to beat all Mr. Freeze stories now. That's the one that his origins always modelled on now. Mr. Freeze, who is once again voiced by Michael Ansara, returning from the series, he's just hanging out in the Arctic with his cryogenically frozen wife, Nora, um, and yes, you do. his adopted Eskimo son. Aww. And, uh, Is he ice themed? No. Well, he's an Eskimo, but... No. But then a, a submarine arrives and sort of punches up through the bottom of the ice and tips over Nora's cryogenic container and breaks it. Uh, and so she's unfrozen. And so he and his Eskimo son return to Gotham to consult an old colleague of his, uh, Dr. Gregory Belson, who is very dodgy, and his voice by George Zonza. Uh, Nora needs a transplant. She's got a very rare, very rare blood type, uh, and there are no dead donors uh, for the organs. And they need, so they decide that they're going to just take a live donor, who turns out to be Barbara Gordon, uh, voiced by Mary Kay Bergman. Of course, Barbara Gordon being Batgirl. Uh, there's almost nothing here. This is um, this is an episode of the TV show at best. It should be 22 minutes. It's 67 instead. Um, there's no narrative complexity. It's paper thin. Mr. Freeze is a, is a decent villain. He's a guy that you actually sympathize with. 
Uh, and the animated series did a lot for him, but most of this movie is just action. Like, really, if you had to, like, compare the amount of dialogue to the amount of action, you're probably looking at, like, 60% of the movie just being in extended action sequences. Um, and there's just not enough narrative heft to support that. There is some good stuff here. There's a really good chase sequence, uh, where Robin is, is chasing Mr. Freeze after he kidnaps Barbara, uh, through the highways and things of Gotham. We've got a pretty nifty explosive climax. Uh, there is stuff to like here, but it's just a little too hollow an experience ultimately. So, anyways, that, in comparison to Phantasm, yeah, in comparison to a lot of the DC movies, I've been I've been having a really good time with these so far. I'll be talking about them more extensively in the weeks to come. Uh, just a heads up, I will have at least ten movies to talk about next week. <laughs> so, because um, I'm going to the cinemas as well. But, anyways, that's it for me this week. So, why don't we move on to our deep dive, which is the first in our, our, our new style of doing this. We're just going to try and have a, a bit of a, of a looser conversation. Uh, so this week we're talking about Philadelphia, which came out in 1993. It's a legal drama directed by Jonathan Demme. It's his first movie after Silence of the Lambs. And it's about a lawyer called Andrew Beckett. He's played by Tom Hanks, and he has AIDS. And he's fired by his law firm after his uh, symptoms become visible. Uh, and he hires Joe Miller who is played by Denzel Washington, to represent him in a suit against his former employees for wrongful termination. Uh, so what do you guys think of this movie? Sean, what do you think? Harrowing. In one word, it's harrowing that this can happen to someone, that they can face that kind of discrimination. It's very, very, very well acted. On all all counts, just as a, as a brief aside, this is Tom Hanks' first Oscar win. Um, deserved, deserved. One of the one of the few actors to have won multiple Oscars consecutively. He won in ninety four for Philadelphia and ninety five for Forrest Gump. Well, he deserved it. it. Denzel Washington is fascinating in this because his character is homophobic at the beginning of the film and throughout a good portion of the film. But you see the change come to him. And it's this gradual thing. There's no one moment yeah. either. They don't make a big, like, showy moment of him no. verbalizing how he's changed and how wrong he was and things like that. They just let it be a thing that happens. They trust the audience enough to realize what's going on. Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's very sad and... Did it make major, Did it make either of you cry? To Bruce Springsteen. No, no. It made me mad. Yeah, more than anything. Uh, it's a fantastic film. Very harrowing. The music's uh, great. Just the one scene where Hanks is talking about the opera. It got me so close to nearly crying, but didn't quite get there. But it's just. Like John said, it's harrowing, it's affecting, it's brilliant, it's just... I'm glad it was shorter than JFK. Because <laughs> it would have been brutal yeah. if it were that length. And f a fantastic performance by Antonio Banderas, I yeah. think. Like, coming off of Spy Kids, that would have been a bit of a left turn. Yeah, yeah. 
for you. <laughs> yeah, I really love this movie too. It's it's super emotional and it's really affecting. And I've got to give it a lot of credit for its place in film history. It really was the first major Hollywood production to address AIDS, uh, or even you know gay rights. Really, um, yeah. the courtroom scenes are just excellent. They're dramatic without oh, being yeah. overwrought. Like they're very tense, but in a like Denzel Washington's not roaming around the floor in front of, you know, the no. jury and everything. He spends a lot of he asks a lot of questions while seated, which is what you would probably be doing as a lawyer most of the time. Even yeah. though you can roam in America, you can't in in the UK or Australia. You have to sit down. <laughs> um, yeah, I. I think the opening was great. Hmm. With him meeting in the office. No, no, like the opening of the oh, film. Oh, yes. They start the film the with a sort of a Streets montage of Philadelphia. set to Streets of Philadelphia by Bruce Springsteen, which was written for the movie. And it's yeah. a lot of uh, raw footage of just random people going about their lives in Philadelphia. And it, like, starts off with showing, like, all of the people who have got it together. Then it starts by the end showing, like, Trash everywhere, homeless people on the sidewalks. Like, it shows that under the clean city of brotherly love veneer of Philadelphia, that there's so much more going on underneath. There's pain there. And the song puts that across. He, Bruce Springsteen won Best Original Song for it. Yo, this movie, a lot of Oscar stuff. Yeah. And I love the way it's All filmed. Can we talk about the cinematography? Sure. The the way that he frames almost monologue moments, the way that he has the ca- actors look directly down the barrel of the camera is brilliant for getting you invested. It's a trick that he used in uh, Silence of the Lambs as well. Yeah. Hmm. Because... It becomes that they're talking to you, but not in a breaking the fourth wall way. You know who they're talking to because you get placed in the space very well, but it's not this them looking over the shoulder of the cameraman thing, and it it puts you solidly in where the characters are. Yeah. So for the courtroom scenes, you do feel... Like, you're just there with that. And especially yeah. in this specific scene where Andrew starts to falter in court when he's yeah. um, being cross-examined by Mary Steenburgen, they do all the canted angles and everything sort of starts to to shift and sway and really get you in his headspace as someone yeah, who is losing his equilibrium. Dutch angles um, and starts tilting. Uh... Another great moment of it is the bit where he Andy has just talked to Joe about becoming his lawyer, uh, and when Andy says that he's got AIDS, you just see Joe like looking intently at everything Andy's touching. Yeah, and he like physically and, separates himself. He like goes to the opposite end of the room. And like I wrote down. When we saw that bit, uh, as I was saying, the way he moved away from Andy 
and the hyper focus on the objects that Eddie was touching is chilling. Because as soon as that happens, you know exactly what he's thinking. He's thinking contagious. Yeah. This is this is a good point to move on to to something else I've been thinking a lot about with this movie. Because there's a very substantial uh, making of documentary of it. And they are very upfront in the documentary about how careful and analytical they were in constructing this film to hit the broadest audience. They were aware, acutely aware, of the fact that they were the first out of the gate. And so part of the reason that you have this Denzel Washington character, he lets, he's, he's the guy that, uh, that straight people who maybe have never really thought about these issues before, he's, the voicing board, the sounding board for all of what yeah. they're thinking. And so what you, as you said, Harley, when they have this, this sequence of him like looking at everything that Andrew has touched, you then get that scene where he goes to the doctor and it's, the doctor might as well be explaining it to the people in the audience. He's saying, this is how you contract AIDS and this is how you don't contract AIDS. Mm-hmm. That's as much a purpose, uh, the purpose of that scene as to tell the audience as it is to tell, uh, Denzel Washington's character. Yeah. And you, you do get a lot of that. You talk, like, they talk very openly in the move, in the documentary about how important it was to cast Tom Hanks because of Tom Hanks' public image. That Tom Hanks gets people who wouldn't want to see an AIDS movie to see an AIDS movie. Yeah. Hmm. And that's why they got Bruce Springsteen hmm. to do the main song for the movie because obviously you can imagine what Bruce Springsteen's main audience is. Hmm. And that was an easy way to get people through the door. And, like, my my entire experience with this movie is from the lens of a straight person. Uh, I have a lot of gay friends, but that's neither here nor there. A lot of people have a lot of gay friends. Yeah. So, that doesn't make me special in any regard. Like, just coming at it from the perspective of a straight man, there's a guilt that, like, that I felt, like, just knowing that, like, and I can't just say that everything is better now and we don't get that shit we see in the movie still happening. Mm-hmm. I can't say that because then I'd be true. a liar. And all three of us live in a country where the government in power is moving towards a religious protection act that would protect employers who are doing shit like they did in this film. Yeah. And things aren't better. They're getting worse again. It's the perfect time for a movie like this. There is, um, even right down to someone like the character of Andrew. Andrew isn't political. He isn't yeah. preachy. He's not trying to make a point, really. It's, it's really just about fairness. It's, he, he's not trying to, he is in, in, in a sense, a character that is, that is coded to be as acceptable to mainstream straight audiences in 1993. As he possibly could be, oh. and that goes into I think a criticism that the movie got out and has 
that the movie got when it came out and has continued to get over the years, which is that this is a, a movie about a gay man told through the eyes of a straight man. That really when we're watching this movie, we're not really watching Andrew's story. We're watching Andrew's story by way of uh, Denzel Washington. Yeah. You don't ever see really a gay kiss, for example, in this film. You don't see that many moments of physical intimacy between Tom Hanks and Antonio Banderas. And this is something that was controversial at the time it came out. There was a scene that was cut that there appears to be competing stories as to whether it was cut because it didn't fit in the movie or whether it was cut because the studio didn't want it there, which featured uh, Tom Hanks and Antonio Banderas in bed together. You are getting... And even when right down to the the part where Andrew goes to see his parents and his family at the, at his parents' home, you see a lot of that at a remove still. You're seeing a lot of that through video footage. You're not necessarily you're you're sort of taken out of the narrative and you're sort of put into you're sort of put behind a camera within the world, like you're watching the vision of someone who is not Andrew watching Andrew do all this stuff. Yeah. And even that, to a certain extent, creates a sort of remove from the character and from the issues. You don't really get a lot of scenes with Andrew where Andrew is the focal point, is the focal character, the narrator character of the scene. A lot of the times it is people around him. Uh, really, the only ones you get, I think, are in the are in the scenes where uh, where he's getting fired. That right. early stuff in the movie. But once he becomes visibly sick, we get a lot less of that. And even yeah. if you look at something like the poster, it is healthy Tom Hanks. It is Tom Hanks as he only looked in the very first scene of this movie. Yeah. So on the one hand, I understand a lot of that criticism, and even to a to a certain degree share it but but on the other hand this is 1993 i mean yeah. you look at how things are now in 2020 still not great we're talking about over, over a quarter century ago uh you you said that no progress really had been made harley i would say that progress has been made it's not been great no, I, yes progress has been made yes. but not enough not nearly enough no but i when you when you think about the time period that this movie was made in 1993, that it was really the first movie out of the gate to address AIDS and address gay issues, and that it was trying to get people who wouldn't talk or think about these issues yeah. to engage with the material in a way that they'd never been asked to before. In that sense, I I can kind of give the movie a pass for all of those problems. Yeah. If this was a movie that came out in 2020, those problems would be inexcusable. Definitely. Yeah, but exactly. considering what it was doing at the time period and the environment that it came out with, and the fact that and it's, it's made, intentioned, yes, it's it's very well intentioned, and it is it is trying to work with the contemporary audience of the day, and did so brilliantly. I just want to point out that this movie made a shit ton of money. Yeah, uh, it was the ninth highest grossing movie of nineteen ninety three. Can you imagine in twenty twenty? Nineteen ninety three was a Big year. Yeah. Can you imagine in nineteen in twenty twenty or twenty nineteen a movie coming out any of those top ten movies being 
an original legal drama about a man dying from AIDS. This movie, when it came out in 1993, made $206.7 million in 1993 money. That's something like $330 million in today's money. It, it wouldn't make that kind of money now. It, for whatever reason, it was the exact right moment. And I spoke about how And uh, the Band Played On was coming out at the same time. Six Degrees of Separation has some gay uh, subplots in it as well. For whatever reason, there was something in the culture at this period of time that allowed it. There was an opening, and these movies took and it. Angels in America mm. came shortly after, and these movies took it. And I think that they did a good movie. There's there's a, something that Tom Hanks says in the the making of documentary. It was at this point in 1993 where everyone knew about AIDS, but a lot of people didn't know anyone who died of AIDS. Yeah. And he said that after they went and saw the movie they felt like they knew someone who had died of AIDS. And that was the difference. It got people to empathize in a way that they hadn't before. It asked them to put themselves in that kind of a situation in a way that they'd previously just been able to sort of wave off. Well, there's something in that feeling because the movie was inspired by and features events similar to the events in the lives of attorneys Jeffrey Bowers and Clarence B. Kane. Uh, Bowers sued his prior employer, his prior law firm, for wrongful dismissal um, in first of, one of the first AIDS discrimination cases. Uh, Kane, very similar. So it was so similar that Bowers' family sued the writers and producers of Philadelphia for the similarities to Bowers' case. Uh, the a year after Bowers' death, uh, the producer Scott Rudin interviewed Bowers' family and the lawyers, and according to the family, uh, promised compensation for the use of Bowers' story as basis for the film. Uh, and 54 scenes in the film uh, to Bowers' family, they consider so similar that it could have easily come from their interviews. Yeah. However, the defense, Rudin's defense, said that they didn't use those interviews after a new writer had entered the project, and the lawsuit settlement is the reason why the film is referred to as being inspired in part yeah. by true events. And these were true events that continued happening, but this movie definitely brought light yeah. to the workplace discrimination aspects. Yeah of uh, the AIDS epidemic. Another important thing that the movie latches onto is the idea of the AIDS epidemic is not just one of a disease-oriented sense, mm. but one of a social failing. Yes, there's that yeah, that haunting line that, uh, as Tom Hanks is reading out the that legal ruling that he's citing, where he says that... Yeah. Uh, Social death precedes the actual physical one. Mm. Yeah. And that was true. Mm. That was and true for so many people. Still is to yeah, a still is. to a infuriating degree. <laughs> not um, not to rebound too much, but I was just looking at the list of the top ten movies of nineteen ninety three. The Pelican Brief, Philadelphia, Sleepless in Seattle, Cliffhanger, Indecent Proposal, The Firm, Schindler's List, The Fugitive, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Jurassic Park. Not a single one of them, with the exception of Jurassic Park, 
would I think would be on the on the top ten list if they came out today? Cliffhanger seems like a weird outlier, and not a single one of them made by Disney. Um, Can't see that anymore. Now I look at twenty nineteen. <laughs> look at twenty nineteen. It's Hobbs and Shaw, Star Wars: The Rise of Skywalker, Aladdin, Joker, Toy Story four, Captain Marvel, Spider Man: Far From Home, Frozen two, The Lion King, Avengers: Endgame. Seven of them. Mostly Marvel. Seven Mostly of them Disney. are made by Disney. And none of them are original scripts. No. So, make of that what you will, audience. Uh, Hank's performance in this is fantastic. Yeah. As we've said before, I feel there's such a quiet dignity at scenes that the, the scene that I always keep going back to in my head is the one where he's talking about the opera. Yeah. And it's got this strange sort of unearthly red hue yeah. to it. It's some it's some real Angels in America stuff. Yeah. It's very reminiscent of that. And it's not focused the camera isn't center frame on Hank's head because Hank's is moving around as well. It's like it's like the camera's trying to capture the mo his moment. Yeah. But it is sort of too slow at times to really grab it. Yeah. And I thought that was just beautiful. The way the camera was sort of dancing. Yeah. With crew. With Hanks. As he's describing the meaning behind this opera. This, yeah, this and it's aria, just yeah. Yeah. Uh Demi That's one of the scenes that got me the most. Demi has this line in the documentary where he's talking about that scene and he says he got that scene in a new version of the script and he said, oh God, this is brilliant, but Christ, how do I film this? Mm. Yeah. Because it it really is such an unusual scene in terms of how it's shot because it is, I mean, you can picture a version of that scene that fails spectacularly. If you just put, mm. if you just point the camera at Tom Hanks and have him standing there motionless, doing the exact same thing, it it doesn't have nearly the kind of emotional impact that it does. Because no. Demi again uses the camera to get in the headspace of the character. Yeah, he uses mm. the camera to try and simulate the emotion and the point of view of what's happening with the character at that moment. But I would argue that even in that scene, to, to go back to some of the criticisms, we are still kind of seeing that from the perspective of Denzel Washington. Yeah. We are still kind of... We are, and it is a transformative scene for Washington's character. It's a transformative scene for Joe. This is really a moment where you can see it in his eyes that this is a moment where he sort of clicks over, where he starts yeah. to see Andrew as a human being who is deserving of respect. Yeah, and not, and not just a client. Not just a client. Because the, the whole reason that he takes this case is, I mean, it's a, it's an admirable impulse in its own right, which is that he believes a law has been broken, so it doesn't matter whether he agrees with the case or not, or whether he understands why the the uh, the partners at the law firm did what they did. Mm. A law has been broken, and it is his job as a lawyer to provide representation. Yeah. Um, and it's not really... He's not really attached to the case and attached to Andrew as a human being until that point. And even then, we it, it's a significant transformation, but it's not an absolute one. When he no. leaves the 
apartment, there's sort of this moment where he hesitates and is sort of, he goes back to the door and he's just about to knock on it. And you think that this is going to be your big scene in the movie where these two guys sort of really connect emotionally. And, and Joe has this come to Jesus moment where he changes, you know, all of these, his philosophies about these issues. Yeah. But the film doesn't give you that because that's not how things work in real life. No. That's an emotionally fraught scene. And that's an emotionally fraught moment. And instead, Joe does what I, I suspect most people would. He, he goes home and he lies awake in bed and hears the opera in his head as he tries to go to sleep. There's a fantastic scene with Hanks and Antonio Banderas where he, where Andrew's having one of his treatments to, I guess, stave off death for another day. And... He's because he's progressing so poorly. The veins in his arm are starting to shrink and close up. And close up. So Miguel, played by Antonio Banderas, can't get the the treatment, the treatment in. And Andrew says, "Just skip it for tonight. It's my treatment. It's my arm. We'll skip tonight." And Miguel says something along the lines of, that's okay, it's only keeping you alive. And And then then Andrew says, well, I guess I should start preparing my, you know, memorial service. Like, planning my funeral. And he's obviously saying it to get a rise out of Miguel and to lighten the tone, but then Miguel says, Maybe you should. And it's that line yeah. that he says to Miguel also, which is a moment of realisation on his part. It's like, yeah. you're worried that we're running out of time. Yeah. And yeah, he is. Mm. And of course he is. Like, And that's when it the pin drops for him. It, that, it drops for Andrew, yeah. Yeah, when it drops for Andrew, he knows he's going to die. And... They also do this thing with Hank's makeup. Yeah. As this, the disease progresses alongside the film, he starts getting sicker and sicker. And thinner and thinner. His hair turns starts gray. losing his hair. It's a gradual thing, too. Yeah. And that was part of the, the thing that Tom Hanks did, was they filmed a lot of the movie in sequence with mm. the understanding that Tom Hanks would basically starve himself. He is getting he's actually getting thinner as the movie progresses yeah. because Tom Hanks is doing this extraordinary fitness routine combined with basically starving himself. To... And Denzel Washington would eat chocolate yeah. bars in front of him. <laughs> I'd like to talk, um, if we could, about some of the some of the more antagonistic characters in the movie. Yeah. Yes. Um mainly a lot of the, the people in the courtroom. Um during the trial. Why don't we start off with the senior partners who fire him? Because I find this to be a particularly interesting part of the movie. First off, there's something interesting to note is that Ron Vorter, who uh, pl- played the guy who um, who suspected that Andrew was sick, yeah. the guy who says at the end that he wished he had talked to Andrew about it, Ron Vorter his, was himself dying of AIDS as... Yeah the film was being made, to the point that he got very, very ill 
um, just before they started filming, and they actually had to cast another actor in case he was not able to complete yeah. the film. Um, so I find it interesting, just on a metatextual level, that that is, that is part of the story of the film. He died shortly after the film was completed. But I would like to talk about a specific scene when just after they've been served at the... At <laughs> Them the, getting served was excellent. Yes. They're getting served at a sports game, and as they're leaving the sports venue, they have this conversation that would seem to imply that a few of them were not aware that Andrew had AIDS. Yeah. They're homophobic and awful people. But I find that scene kind of interesting, and I'm not entirely sure why it's there in that sense, because it complicates things a lot. I don't think I don't think you can really say that he wasn't fired because he had AIDS, because the the, the intentional sabotaging of the case that was done to him is, yeah. is pretty exp- like it, that puts it to bed. Like we, the audience, are given enough information that no other character would have to know. And that- as the jury says at the end, you don't give your biggest job to someone who flakes constantly. You give it to your best person. And there's no other reason why they would fire him other than, you know, sure. coming to the yeah. worst conclusion. Which is why that that is that scene is flagged for me as something to think about. I read that as yes, only the one person knew that he had AIDS, but they all knew he was gay. And that is why the sabotage happened. That is why he was sacked. It was only the one dude knew about the AIDS and didn't mention it. Well, I, I no, the one guy saw, figured out no, he was gay. No, the one guy at near the beginning he saw the legion the sarcoma. Yeah, yeah, yes, but again, that the record the excuse can. No, but he recognised you know. it because of the person who previously yeah. worked with it. The whole thing seems sort of self-contradictory, because on the one hand, you've got the Ron Vorder character who suspects and regrets the firing of Andrew. On the other hand, you've got this guy that you've pointed out, John, who sees the sarcoma and knows from experience of working with an, another person with AIDS what that likely means. And then on the other hand... He's the one who told them. Yes. And then on the other hand, you've got this statement from the fellow in charge when they're alone, when they're all alone together, they're not protecting what they're saying from outside ears. When he says, do, do you know that he had AIDS? Acting as if he did not know. And I, well, and he's I, I, saying that as someone who knows now yes. and is sort of pointing the finger at him saying, we could have all got infected. Did you know then? Did you know then? Okay. That's- and, and he's saying, he, he, he explicitly even says, Pisses in the same toilets. He drinks from the same fountains. He yeah. He has this walked around our office. This ridiculous line he says he brought Sugar AIDS house. into our men's room. <laughs> yeah, and it's still like the actor and it's is. Like, Come on, you're you're new. You're Philadelphia in the nineties. The you'd be surprised if there was a bloody men's room that didn't have plague of any sort. Yeah, well, that's not even but, how AIDS works though. No, no, exactly. It's not. Like exactly. any other various that's diseases. Ridiculous. The actor was uh, Jason Robards. He was the Ben Bradley in uh, All the President's Men. Um, He's delightfully cruel and evil. Hmm. He does this 
so well. But even then, there's there's little bits of shading around his character that I'm not sure what to make of it. Because he, he doesn't seem to relish Andy's situation either. This is not excusing mm. anything that he does. I mean, he's a terrible person. He's a homophobe. But at the same time, he's not like a moustache-twirling villain. No. There's the scene where Andrew collapses in court. Demi makes a point to cut to him, saying, for Christ's sake, someone get a doctor. Yeah. This is not the comment of someone who is totally detached from the fate of what's happening to the guy. Um, mm. There's also that, that great little beat with Mary Steenburgen when all you really get of her is her being so aggressive towards Andrew in the courtroom yeah. because that's her role as, as the defence attorney. It's a job. But you get that great moment that only we, the audience, are really privy to where she's really just sort of personally attacked him on the stand and she goes back and sits down and Christ, just... I hate this case. Yeah. Just whispers it to her co-counsel. And it's just this one little beat that gives that character so much more dimension yeah. than she would otherwise Also, have. the co-counsel... He had serious Jordan Peele energy. Did you notice that? No. No? He had energy. I just can't identify <laughs> no, what it, no, energy it's, it was. No, it's the moustache and the way he spoke. I was like, that sounds... And he's sort of acting like Jordan Peele. But anyway, that was just me. But then and, but then, even going on to the, the judge, the judge starts out... He mellows as the case goes on. Like, he starts yeah. to sort of rule in ways that would suggest that he's starting to understand the case a little bit more. Yeah. He thought mm. one way at the start, but he thought a different way later on. Like, when he when he makes the Jason Robards character answer the question of whether he's gay. Yes. Um, I was like, hell yes, Judge. Hell <laughs> answer yes. Answer the question. Because it is this sort of... There, there's a deleted scene. It's on the disc, which is that he's a friend of that guy. Like, mm. he's friends with all oh. of these lawyers. <laughs> and and there's this whole without that scene the sort of context of it goes but when you know that deleted scene there's sort of this context of well it's sort of rigged against them from the start mm. um he the scene in question the judge calls them all into his office before the case goes to trial and says look i hate it when lawyers sue each other um let's just settle this now if we can and he, he says specifically to Andrew, you know, you do not want to take this to trial. You will regret this. Like, there's, it's not a particularly veiled about what he, whose mm. side that he's on. And then after Andrew leaves the room and they decide to go to trial, like, the last line of the scene is the judge turning around to all of the, the lawyers that have been accused and saying, so you want to do lunch at the club? <laughs> so... And maybe that is just because I know this deleted scene that that's colouring my view of the rest of the movie as far as the judge is concerned. But I actually kind of regret that that scene was taken out because I think mm -hmm. that that gives the judge some dimension and gives him a little bit of a journey. You even get that with the the jury foreman. Like, you get yeah. that awful story that Jason Robards tells of the uh, gay guy that he served with when he was in the Navy that yeah. they all used the toilet and then forced his head into it. Um mm. And you get the uh, the jury foreman sort of giggling like a moron at this, but then he's the one in the the little quick bit that we get of the jury deliberations. Yeah. He's the guy that's really setting things out as like none of this makes sense. They clearly fired him because he had that because he has AIDS. Yeah, and there's just little details like that that, and I do wonder how much of that is to is directed at the straight audience of 1993. Mm. How much of that is to 
not let them off the hook, but but to try and be conciliatory in a certain sense, to try make and them feel better, to try and bring people with them, as opposed to yeah, yeah. But it, it it is there's just very interesting shading on a lot of those characters that you can imagine in another movie are very one note and mustache twirling. Like you can imagine yeah. a version of that movie where Jason Robards' character is totally and completely irredeemable. Yeah. And that none of this is... It was virgin yes, close. None of this is... Yeah, exactly. None of this is, of course, to, to let any of those characters off the hook. None of this is saying that any of that behaviour is appropriate. Like, they're all pretty awful. It could have been more obvious. Yes, but they try and yeah. make them real human beings. Yeah. Because ultimately, portraying homophobes and the such as something other than immensely flawed human beings... Defeats the entire point. Defeats the point of betraying them at all. Because it's not, you know, one-sided caricatures that end up having these horrible ideologies. It's people who have these horrible ideologies. And how are you going to change someone's opinion or remove a bigot from bigotry if you just treat them like a monster? Jojo Rabbit was completely that. Yeah. And it's... Betraying these people as people and... Well, not excusing the things that they say and do. Yeah, and using that as a way to uh, explore how one changes their mind. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's the case with, with Miller. Miller. And I suspect that when... If this movie were made today, we'd have a lot less time for any of that. Yeah. Justifiably, I suspect. The, the uh, Overton window has moved... What we consider to be a reasonable, that's not even a good word for it, reasonable. Socially acceptable. Socially acceptable by the broader mainstream. Like, you still have those voices in public who say awful things about gay people, but they are now the fringe, whereas previously they were the mainstream. Yeah. Um, And I feel like you'd have a lot less time for that kind of shading today. Because it's a, that kind of behaviour is a lot less accepted today. It's yeah. it, it's a lot less... And it was never excusable. Don't get me wrong about this. It was never excusable. But to the people of 1993, it was excusable. Like, there are many moments in this film where Miller is laughing along with these horrific jokes that people are saying. And there's one moment where Andrew says that he was at a sauna with the partners, which, I don't know... I probably wouldn't go to a sauna with a bunch of guys like them, but sure. At least business partners. At least business partners, I don't know. A sauna seems like a very intimate... Well, I think that the whole thing is they're at the club that they all... Yeah, they're at the club, and they're saying these horrific, horrific jokes about gay people and women. Like, they're sexists too... And and the movie does. And as Andrew says, and Andrew says, this was the one moment. This was the moment where I knew I couldn't say anything to them. And he says this fantastic thing. He's like, and someone asks, "How did you feel?" He says, "Relieved. I knew I would never tell them. Yeah. I knew that if I did, my life would end." Mm. And he says, "It felt so freeing to know that." I couldn't say anything to them. I couldn't say anything to them. And felt no need to. Yeah. And there's this 
other moment when the lawyer for the law firm, who, mind you, was probably a co-worker of Andrew's, judging by the fact that they likely hired in-house. Yeah. Uh, tries to get him to show the jury uh, his lesions. He currently has none on his face. Only one near his neck. Only ear. one near his neck, but it's quite faint. Uh, and then uh, Miller asks, where do you have visible lesions similar to that of when uh, the partners would have noticed Seen the one it. on your face. And he says, on my chest. And when he removes his shirt, it's honestly a terrifying sight. His torso is covered in the same lesions. But bigger. But bigger. And it just goes to show you how strong Andrew actually is being. Still sitting up there. Because throughout this entire portion... He is, like, as Lawson said earlier, he's dying. He's dying. He is. It's like, it's not the fact that he's getting weaker at this moment. No, he's just dying. And the camera is showing that too, with it tipping from side to side, almost Dutch angling at times. Yes. You you can see from the. And there are dolly zooms as well. You mentioned, John, the, uh, the sexist jokes that they're telling. And I find that kind of important, too, that the movie sort of does graze that area of things, that it is acknowledging also sexism and racism. You have the African-American colleague of of Andrews who testifies. And it's also making this broader point about fundamentally, you know, respecting colleagues, respecting employees, respecting people that we work with, Uh, and making a broader point about discrimination, the old boys club kind of thing. You know, that thing in big companies that is still a thing today of, you know, the the people in power, the people with the decision-making capabilities who can really choose whether to hire or fire, tend to be older white men, older white straight men. And you can have as as many skim milk lattes getting served in your company bloody cafe, and you can have as many stupid bloody retreats out into the mountains for team building as you want but until you see everyone as a full-blooded bloody human being then then all of this is pointless until you see people as humans and it's not just that it's seeing everybody in the workplace as a valuable part of that workplace it's because you can tell that in those sort of locations, they're doing a lot of the whole, oh, we have retreats, we have family picnics, uh, we have all these skim milk latte machines, we have a basketball court in the center of the facility, we have like bean bags sitting around everywhere, even though nobody's sitting in them. Because they're all busy working. You could present the friendliest workplace humanly possible, and it still betray, and it still seems incredibly performative. Like at the start of the movie, when Andrew's walking through, talking to everybody, seems like a fantastic workplace. Friendly people, everyone knows each other, everyone's friendly. But it's also sort of set up by the fact that this case that where Miller and Andrew meet for the first time is a case about what's it called the Hightower I think so, yeah. case 
and it's about the dust from a from the construction done on to build this place is spewing out into the neighboring neighborhoods and people are getting sick because of I it. I love how both of them in that scene are going so grand and theatrical with their pictures and then the judge is mm. just like, alright, let's calm down, gentlemen. <laughs> yeah. Let's bring like, it down to what's I'm not a jury. Like, I'm, I know exactly what you're both doing. <laughs> let's just yeah. calm this down. But that scene sets it up as this law firm will do what they need will to do, do what they need to do even if it is wrong is shitting on the little guy in but, order to get the outcome that they want like, and not only that it's also in the case that andrew is presented and the one he was working on and the one that gets sent it's that one it is it's not it's the same that, one no it's that case the separate case no where no, a small it business... It isn't, John. No? It's, it's a, a different, different case. case. He's awarded this new case right. when he gets called into the apartment. He's awarded a new case due to his success on this past yeah. one, and it's basically a smaller business has begun working with this big business, Yeah, and this big business is pretty much about to screw the small business. Oh, the copyright thing. Copyright thing. Right. And... Uh, or is... That same thing. It's like the power dynamics in that workplace. It can be as friend, it can look and be as presented as friendly as humanly possible, but there's still that power imbalance, not only in the business hierarchy, but it's the social hierarchy. Yeah. That stems from that. And is until that social hierarchy gets mended and exists in a way where everyone can respect everyone else, then that old Boys Club, club will stay around, um, will still exist. I think we, we're drawing to the end of our, our conversation here, and I'd just like to finally, if we, if we might talk about the ending. We get that scene of Joe at Andrew's bed in the hospital, and it's the yeah. juxtaposition of that first scene where he's so afraid of contracting AIDS from Andrew touching him or Andrew touching things in his office. Yeah juxtaposed with him just very gently readjusting Andrew's breathing mask at the end. Yeah. And touching, and touching his, his face. face. And it's not self-conscious in the same way it is at the start. And it's not drawn attention to a lot it's, of what this movie does. A lot of the development of characters, the development of, mm. of themes is not necessarily stuff that they draw attention to. It just lets... No, it's it's all this silent work that's being done. And, and, and Joe's doing it with no hesitation. No. There's, there's none there. It's not a big moment, like you said. It's, it's, it's really what we, what it's all we it's need. All necessary. we need is the audience, and it's, and it's in likelihood probably what the character would have done. You know, we, we yeah. would, there wouldn't be this big thing of, oh well, let me tell you, Andrew, that you've really made me see the error of my ways, and I just want you to know that I'm a different person going forward, and you know. All of this stuff. I mean, it might make us feel good sitting in the audience. Yeah, but they're both they're lawyers. Both lawyers, and like they don't—they bullshit, but they don't they bullshit have to, each other. And it shows that the movie has self-respect as well. Yeah, it and it respects the audience to not go, oh, oh do we're going to make a big monologue about how he's changed? And even like, because how often do people go into monologues? And even that change does not appear to be absolute. 
Like there's, there's oh. it, it's it's a significant transformation. But you know, he has this this daughter at home. You know, if his daughter came out one day and said, "Oh, Dad, I think I'm gay," you still get the impression that that would be probably be pretty difficult for him. Yeah, it's mm. not this sort of but it, magic. It's not the Green Book thing, where no, you no. know, uh, uh, congratulations, we've solved. Yes, it. we're just like we drove around in a car for two hours, and uh, now everyone is on the same page. It's not the driving Miss Daisy thing. Um, it's more emotionally honest about the complexities of bigotry and discrimination and yeah. how mm. counterintuitive people can be a lot of the time. But we get that really yeah. heartbreaking scene, which you said the Aria yeah. scene is the one that got you closest to cry, Harley. Oh, I've reassessed that just when you mentioned this yeah. final scene. Uh, yeah, it's the final scene. It's this scene. last yeah. scene that always does it for me, which is the Neil Young song, Philadelphia. Uh, yeah. And which was also nominated for original song at the Oscars. Um, Neil so- got two original yeah. songs. Neil, Neil Young, by the way, was an, was approached to do a song for the opening. He wrote that one. And they were like, this is yeah. an ending song. This isn't an opening song, so we'll go to Bruce Springsteen instead. So Neil Young yeah. really sort of cheated himself out of an Oscar. <laughs> and Bruce Springsteen uh, wrote the song Tunnel, Tunnel of Love for, the, for Philadelphia. But they were like, no, it doesn't really fit. So he went back well, and he wrote Streets of Philadelphia. Demi, Peter Gabriel also has a song in this movie called Love Town. Demi says on the documentary that he wanted a sort of a rock anthem. He wanted a rock anthem mm. to to let all the man the man's men in the audience know it's all right. Bruce Springsteen's got a rock song. It's it's okay. This is a movie about yes, men. You can watch this movie. Uh, you know, macho man. Um, well, I mean, what's more macho than having sex with a dude? <laughs> That's like two machos. But um, macho. All right. But uh, he he wanted a rock anthem, and he went to Neil Young, and Neil Young came back with what he came back with, and then he was like, "All right, that's an ending song. It's a great ending song. So let's go to Bruce Springsteen." Mm. Bruce Springsteen came back with something that is not a rock anthem either. No. <laughs> Demi says in this, he's like documentary. He's like, and I thought to myself. Maybe these people have more confidence in my movie than I have. Yeah, maybe this yeah. is telling me something, and so he just went with it. Mm. But you get yeah. this scene, at, and they're both excellent songs. You get this scene at the end, which is just the wake, and all of these people at the wake for Andrew, and then the final shot is home video movies of him as a child, which is actually Tom actual home actual movies, home movies of, Tom of Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Wouldn't be Tom Cruise. The <laughs> that did get me, but. The one near the end I'm talking about is when his family, when Andy's family is saying goodbye. Saying goodbye. And, saying, and what you can tell as the middle brother, but yeah, with you can Andy tell as the, the youngest brother. and the other one is the oldest. And the middle brother just starts weeping on over like, Andy. And that, is holding him. Yeah, That got to me something fierce. Yeah. Because... Like, that was just so well done. And the way the mother the sort best... of comes in and is like, it's all right. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's go. One of the best... This movie, like, that scene and the wake, I think that's the best ever portrayal of a wake that I've seen in a film. It's just sort of simple. It just shows all of these people in his life and they're, they're talking yeah. and there's all the... They're in his apartment and there's all of the 
memories of him, and then at the end you get the yeah. the recognition of him as a person with like the, the, the video. Yeah, and the thing that got me was how one of his sisters is meeting their niece for the first time. Hmm. And it's this lovely, it's this joyous moment at what is a sad occasion. And that's very real. Is it, that is, happens in There's this moment where Antonio Banderas greets his parents. And they're yeah. so obviously distraught. Like Antonio Banderas' yeah. pa- parents. And it's just this little yeah. bead of like, their families are so nice. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like their families are so lovely and supportive. I mean, it's sort it of is, is. It is beautiful. It sort of is almost like, like you know, this is the template people. <laughs> Follow yeah. these people. Do what they're doing. Um, and there's an earlier scene where, just to talk about Andrew's family a little bit, they Andrew goes to them and says, "Look." When this goes to court, and it will, you're going to hear a lot of things about my life. And they're not going to be easy for you to hear. And they say, Andrew, this is what you have to do. Nothing is going to make us think any less of you. And they say uh, to both Andrew and Miguel. Miguel, they say, like, you are both so brave for doing this. Yeah, and that they admire their courage. And it's like, guys, we could have have a family like that portrayed in 1993, and we're still having difficulty with that now? I mean, guys, just be like them. I agree with you, Lawson. Like, if every family was like them... Something that I do like, and the movie, movie then, doesn't really draw overt attention to it is like it sort of is kind of taking the piss also out of like weird reactionary homophobes the like jump up and down ones yeah. like all the protesters outside mm. there's the bit where he goes outside and there's this one like just the most overacting and I believe it's intentional yeah. where he goes it's Adam and Eve not Adam and Steve oh, Adam and Steve <laughs> while we were watching it the moment that guy said it I was like oh fuck off <laughs> Like, but like, and it, and it must be intentional, like, because Demi left it in the movie. It's like it's so over yeah. the top that you just can't take it seriously. Like, you've got to laugh at how stupid it is. Yeah, and and look, homophobia is—it's silly. Yeah. Bigotry is silly. It's illogical. Like, it makes it's, no rational it's, sense. It's, it, exactly, and that—that's the way I came to the that conclusion. It's like, what? It's ridiculous. To hate someone for something they've got no control over. And something and that honestly something doesn't, that affect doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah, and people people use the uh use the Bible as a way to justify all this. And I you know, just I I Yeah, let's all not let, yeah. let's not all not eat shrimp I am, then. I am religious, but I would I would just say that, you know, the Bible says a lot of things. Like you said, technically we're not supposed to eat shellfish. Uh technically you're supposed to kill someone if they you work on the Sabbath. You know? Yeah. You're not supposed to wear clothes like, made hey, out of two different threads. Yeah, it's like, kill someone if they work on the Sabbath. I'm working right now. It's, it's all of the absurd, all of this absurd, hateful, malicious crap that we felt so comfortable in ditching over the years because we've understood that it's a product of 2,000 years ago and it makes no sense. But yeah. for whatever reason, there is this subset of people not a very big one if you look at like the polling on issues like this 
that for whatever reason, this is the hill that they've chosen to die on. That they're going to vocal that they're gonna ignore all of the other stuff in the Bible about you know do unto others as do unto you you know love thy neighbor um, just be you nice know, God loves everyone uh, God created everyone in His own image you know that kind of thing you know yeah there's this sort of idea that this is the one thing that they're going to hold on to yeah anyways on that there's on a, that note there's a horrific story about um. You know Fred Phelps? Yes, I saw this quote. I saw that quote. Horrific. Yeah, he had like an awful quote. He was asked what he thought of the movie and he said he it was one of his favourite comedies. Yeah. That man's an arsehole. Um, He's dead too. Is he? Yep. Hmm. Well, anyways, that's, that's about it, I think, for the for the discussion of the movie. I think, I think it worked out pretty well, this new scheme. I think we're a bit shaky. To start off with, but I think we've found mm. the rhythm. Bit of a deep end to throw ourselves in in terms of that. <laughs> uh, like, it's a not... very serious movie with a lot of... Like, I know Andrew, the character, is not political, but it's a political yes. movie. Yes. So, Everything's uh, well, political. luckily that we, we won't have those kind of, of deep, thoughtful things to think about next week, because we will... Or the following. We will be watching uh, The Batman versus Dracula. Which is... We're doing another sharp turn. Yes, another 180 in the opposite direction of tone. The Batman vs. Dracula, which is, so I suppose, sort of a pseudo-spin-off of the Batman TV show. Uh, and it and it does what it says on the tin. Uh, the Batman is there and Dracula is there and they fight each other. Although, I want to leave off talking about what, Philadelphia what with want? a joke. There is a clip in the ending little montage of young Tom Hanks dressed as a cowboy. And it's like, huh, Sheriff Woody. And Dad said this great joke. He said, huh, that's when Hanks was not so big. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, On that note. (laughs) Just to, I guess, bring some levity, because it was a harsh watch. (laughs) It was, but I I think we got some good discussion out it of it. It was an important watch. Anyways, until next time with Batman vs. Dracula. Oh, and I, I keep forgetting to do this because I feel like we should be doing this because this is apparently a thing that helps the visibility of the podcast. Um, if just whatever platform that you've listened to us on, if you could go in and, and write a brief review and, and rate us five stars, we'd really appreciate it because that apparently does help us... Um, you know, get a little more visibility, uh, get the podcast uh, surface to more people. Not that we don't appreciate our 11 regular listeners, but, uh, you know, we'd like to grow in number and perhaps this would help us. So, yeah, I I just felt, I keep forgetting to say that, but I I think we should probably start just making a little little plea, a little begging at the end of every episode. A little begging can't do you no My, My dignity is not so much that I can't, that I can't, you know, get on my hands and knees and say, please, please give us five stars on the Apple iTunes store. Or whatever podcast provider you Toss a coin to your local podcasters. Toss a coin to the podcaster. Uh, (laughs) So, and with that, uh, comment, you know... Like, subscribe. Like, subscribe, share it with your friends. Uh, I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been John Lewis. I don't have a pithy thing to say at the end of this one, though. But will you always be John Lewis? Always. <laughs>